And welcome to Parallel Worlds Audio, issue 6, February 2020, expertly recorded the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial It is a truism that science fiction reflects the time in which it is written. It's well recognised that this is true of science fiction and fantasy at least as much as other genres. However starward and authors gaze, readers decades later invariably find their work rooted in their own time, sometimes painfully so. But science fiction in particular is today an intensely political arena. It leans heavily leftward in the UK, it's not obvious why this is so, and it hasn't always been. Many writers from the golden age of the genre espouse social views that seem repulsive to many modern readers, with their sincere flirtations with eugenics and stark racial prejudice. So what explains today's orthodoxy? Conservatives might say that if your head is full of the fantastical, of course your views on the real world are going to be unrealistically simplistic. Progressives might retort that if you're primarily concerned with the question of what could humanity become, you will naturally gravitate towards solutions that embrace our species' potential for good, rather than accepting an imperfect present. Who knows? This writer certainly doesn't, but share your thoughts, if you have them, to tom at parallelworlds.uk. In this month's issue, we embrace this debate, albeit delicately and with care. We look back at Amazing Stories, a seminal monthly magazine in the grand tradition of our own, approaching their centenary, whose contents show, warts and all, the changing social attitudes of readers and writers. We catch up on the ways the role-playing game community are attempting to balance grown-up themes and content with inclusivity and sensitivity. We look at the changing landscape of sex representation in our three favourite media of games, books and screen. And we take sides in the debate over Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, itself having seemed to become a totemic social issue. If that's all a bit earnest for you, don't worry. We're also recapping the history of one of gaming's most delightfully old-fashioned franchises, Battletech, as well as looking back on Babylon 5 to find out why this relic of the 90s is worth your time. We review self-published books, Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Ruin, and the excellent board game Lifeform. We also continue our feature series on the most active communities in science fiction and fantasy today, as well as rounding up with our customary injection of excellent original fiction. So like all the best works of science fiction and fantasy, lots to think about, but also lots to enjoy. Think bigger. Megastructures. Originally popularised in the 1960s, megastructures are a staple of science fiction. Theoretical feats of engineering at a planetary or even stellar scale, they have been the subject of speculation, novels, films and a few video games. Megastructures range from the impractical but technically possible to the outright fantastical. The term is vaguely defined, although a unifying factor in all is that they are engineering projects on an immense scale. Some are well known, such as Star Wars Death Star, while others are more obscure, such as the Beanstalk space elevator in fantasy flight games Android setting. The archetypal megastructure is the Ringworld. First suggested in Larry Niven's 1970 novel Ringworld, it is a vast space station constructed in a giant loop around a star, 1.6 million kilometres in diameter, roughly the same as Earth's orbit around the Sun. The inner surface of a ring world is open but habitable, as it possesses its own atmosphere. There have been several adaptations and variations on a conceptual ring world, from an even larger Alderson disc proposed by Dan Alderson, the enclosed Topopolis, or Cosmic Spaghetti, 
and smaller orbitals and bishop rings, which do not circle a star. The smallest variation of the ring world was the Stanford Taurus, proposed as a theoretical project by NASA in 1975, which would constitute an enclosed circular habitat in orbit around the Earth. These designs have shaped our concepts of the future for much of the last half century. Aside from the work of Niven, ringworld-type megastructures have appeared in a wide array of fiction. The orbital first appeared in Ian M. Banks' 1987 novel, Consider Flaybass, while the space station in Neil Blomkamp's 2013 film Elysium bears a striking similarity to the Stanford Taurus, though, like a larger ringworld, it sustains its own atmosphere without needing to be enclosed. In games, the Halo series by Bungie Studios and 343 Industries has perhaps the most well-known example of ringworld derivatives in its titular Halo Array, a series of orbital habitats which double as superweapons. Created by the advanced Forerunners, they serve as primary locations for many of the games and were designed to study and prevent the spread of parasitic flood. During development of the first game, 2001's Halo Combat Evolved, the setting was originally to be a different form of megastructure known as a global casus or hollow world. But over the course of developing the game, it was changed to a ring world, then an orbital, with Niven's ring world being cited as inspiration for this decision. Other envisioned habitable megastructures include ecumenopoli and interstellar arcs. An ecumenopolis is a theoretical final extent of urbanization, a city spanning the entire surface of a planet. Perhaps the most well-known fictional ecumenopolis is the planet Coruscant in the Star Wars franchise. A major location in the film Revenge of the Sith, released in 2005, it has appeared in various games based in the Star Wars universe, such as the Battlefront series, released between 2004 and 2017, and Star Wars The Old Republic, released in 2011. Meanwhile, interstellar arcs are conceptual spacecraft capable of housing and sustaining hundreds of thousands of people to ensure survival over long space journeys. Also known as generation ships, meaning they are home to multiple generations of people, they are viewed as a plausible method of colonising other planets or surviving a catastrophe that rendered Earth uninhabitable. The idea has appeared commonly in science fiction, including the 2009 film Pandora and the 2014 game Elite Dangerous. They are often used to caution against over-industrialisation. In the 2008 Pixar film Wall E, the remaining population of Earth live on an ark which will supposedly return home one day but in truth has abandoned the planet due to intolerable levels of pollution. The first arc appeared in the 1933 novel When Worlds Collide by Philip Wiley and Edwin Bulmer, in which it was constructed to avoid the imminent destruction of Earth, though it only carried 40 humans rather than the thousands later arcs would. In games, Mass Effect Andromeda, released 2017, features an arc as its main setting, destined for the Andromeda galaxy with the mission of finding new worlds to colonise. Amplitude Studios' Endless Space 2, released in 2017, features a civilization of zealous aliens called the Vodjani, who are forced to live aboard arcs after they depleted the scarce natural resources of their homeworld. The arc-bound existence is carried through into the game's mechanics. Most factions must build colony ships and send them to uninhabited planets in order to expand, while the Vodjani must instead construct arc ships which can exploit the resources of an entire system at once. Should the Vajani find a better location to settle, they can simply move the Ark ship there instead of needing to spend time and resources on a new ship, as the game's more conventional factions would. Another type of megastructure, and one with a great deal of versatility, is the Dyson Sphere, 
an idea which originated in Olaf Stapledon's 1937 novel Starmaker. The name came much later, in 1960, when physicist Freeman Dyson wrote a paper titled Search for Artificial Stellar Sources of Infrared Radiation, discussing a similar idea. The Dyson Sphere is a theoretical solution to the problem of increasing energy requirements of an interplanetary or interstellar civilization. Stapledon and Dyson suggested that, when energy requirements exceed the capacity of a single planet, a vast structure could be built around a star to harness far more of its energy than ever reaches a planet. Similar to the ring world, there are a few variations of the Dyson Sphere concept, including the Matryoshka brain, which uses the collected energy to power a gigantic computer, and the stellar engine, which converts the star's energy into thrust, allowing the entire solar system containing the sphere to become mobile. In fiction, Dyson spheres are among the most common megastructures. Niven wrote about Dyson rings, another variation of the Dyson sphere in Ringworld, and Isaac Asimov mentioned them in the short story The Last Question in 1956. 1975's Farthest Star and 1983's Wall Around a Star by Frederick Pohl and Jack Williamson feature a Dyson sphere with an inhabited exterior where the climate and wildlife are delightfully alien. More recently, Marvel Studios' Avengers Infinity War, released in 2018, featured a Dyson sphere used to power the forge in Nidavellir, based on one of the nine realms from Norse mythology, where the weapons of the gods were created. In games, the Halo series once again makes use of these hypothetical structures. Shield worlds are a series of small spheres built around artificial stars. Like the Halo array, they were created by the Forerunners. But their purpose was to protect organisms from the destructive capabilities of the Halo Array, so that when fired, it would not wipe out the Forerunners along with the Flood. A significant portion of 2012's Halo 4 takes place on and within one of these shield worlds. One game in particular stands out for its use of megastructures. Paradox Interactive's 2016 game Stellaris is a strategic sandbox giving players total control over their species and civilization from a governmental to a genetic level. Whether dictatorship or democracy, reptilian or robot, there are a wealth of possibilities in the game, including the restoration or construction of a huge variety of megastructures. In a game's opening stages, players have a good chance of encountering a ruined megastructure left over from an ancient precursor, or meeting a fallen empire, a civilization so ancient and advanced they no longer care to take part in galactic politics and warfare, but who possess fully operational megastructures. As a player's technology improves throughout the game, they will gain the ability to rebuild ruined megastructures, construct new ones of their own, or even build up a fleet capable of taking a fallen empire's megastructure by force. While some of the megastructures are easily recognisable, such as Ringworlds, Ecumenopoli and Dyson Spheres, Stellaris also includes several unique megastructures such as matter decompressors which extract minerals from black holes, and gateways, linked portals which can be used to instantaneously travel vast distances. Large artificial habitats can even be created to act as pseudo-planets. Stellaris is a game which doesn't just include megastructures, it gives the player total control over them, and what kind of role they will play in the Empire. However, it's clear from the examples mentioned that the megastructures are more common in books and film than they are in video games. Partly this is down to their size, from the perspective of the player, in a first-person shooter game, does it matter whether the landscape you're traversing is a naturally occurring planet or an artificial one? An asset the size of a planet is only meaningful in gameplay terms at the grandest of scales, which is probably why, of the games listed above, several are in the grand strategy genre. 
Narrative is different from gameplay though, and here megastructures potentially have more relevance. An inconceivably massive megastructure kept shrouded in mystery, like the Halo Array, is that much more compelling and intriguing than a simple landscape, however improbable. Megastructures are perhaps the ultimate manifestation of civilization's achievement. In science fiction, they give us a vision of how a post-Earth humanity could survive. But they're more than that. Few of science fiction's creations inspire as much awe. In storytelling, they serve as the logical endpoint of technological hubris, and perhaps the zenith of what we as a species could one day achieve. Faster My Stompy Robots, an introduction to Battletech. The last few years have been good for those of us who like our robots big and stompy. One of gaming's most beloved, albeit niche, franchises, Battletech, has been going through a resurgence, and it's magnificent to behold. Whether it's harebrained schemes' eponymous turn-based PC strategy game, the new tabletop rules from Catalyst Game Labs, or the newly released first-person Mexim MechWarrior 5 mercenaries, there's something for everyone. There's never been a better time to delve into the lore of one of gaming's most interesting worlds and the history of how it came to be. Japan has been the source of many adapted American cartoon and toy franchises. Some receive a simple dubbing and reboxing translation, others get a complete reimagining, so end up as a weird cousin to their original inspiration. For Battletech, it began in 1984, when two friends, whilst browsing the floor at the Hobby Industry Association trade show in California, came across a stand selling surplus plastic models from the Japanese TV show Super Dimension Fortress Macross. They were unlabeled, unboxed, and when assembled, stood about 10 centimetres high. "'Giant walking robots!' exclaimed K. Ross Babcock, noticing that the models were the perfect size for a tabletop miniatures game. He and his friend Jordan Weissman struck a deal with the importer to purchase a dozen variations of them, and later that year the board game Battle Droids was released. The game was a huge success, selling through the original run of 5,000 units in just a few months.' However, the name Battle Droids drew the attention of another franchise, Star Wars. In late 1984, Babcock and Wiseman received a letter from Lucasfilm, politely explaining that they were unhappy with the use of droids in the title. Weisman explained that the word android had been used by Isaac Asimov since the mid-1950s. Lucasfilm explained that they had more lawyers. Babcock and Weissman decided that this was not a fight worth having, not least because they'd certainly lose it. In 1985, they placed a run for a further 10,000 units and changed the name to Battle Tech. One of gaming's most enduring franchises had been born, one that would spawn dozens of games across various formats and platforms in the coming decades. A significant part of what makes the Battletech franchise such rich ground for experimentation in different formats is the depth and consistency of the world created by its lore. The setting is a classic example of what's sometimes called feudal futurism, science fiction peppered with the social structures and norms of the medieval period. The society created by the fall of the Star League, more on that shortly, 
has its narrative roots in medieval Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. It's more than just a vehicle for giant walking robots, it's an epic tale of a future in which interplanetary empires ruled by aristocratic houses wage war against one another for territory. Where human life is cheap compared with the value of ancient and forgotten technology, the famous Lost Tech. Humanity has colonised the stars and now inhabits a vast region of space around our home planet. For hundreds of years, this region was protected and ruled by a central body called the Star League, a coalition of the most powerful ruling bodies in the inner sphere of planets, known as the Great Houses. When the Star League collapsed, through internal political struggling and outright treachery, the Great Houses each claimed the right to succeed it as the rulers of the inner sphere. War was inevitable. By the beginning of the third millennium, the setting of the first games in the series, the Third Succession War, has been rolling for nearly 150 years. Humanity is in a technological dark age, and the governments of the various successor states have nearly all descended to a neo-feudal system of government. The Great Houses scheme and fight border skirmishes against their neighbours, but none have the resource for massive all-out assaults anymore. Mercenary companies have become the de facto fighting forces, deniable and expendable. They allow the successor states to conserve their dwindling resources while still harassing their hereditary foes. It's a fantastic setting for a gaming franchise which owes its defining features, at least in part, to the practicalities of creating a tabletop game. Weissman wanted to create a world in which any of the factions could conceivably be the good guys or the bad guys, depending on your point of view. This would let players battle each other without obliging them to take predefined moral roles. They also had a limited number of models, so needed the setting to support the idea of many factions using the same technology. The concept of a once-united government falling apart in civil war fit these requirements perfectly. Here was why everyone had the same equipment. They're all using leftover Star League technology. What's more, when all of your factions are fighting over the same prize, there isn't really a good or bad, just varied and interesting shades of grey. The lore of the Battletech universe is massive and complex. In the summary above, I've skipped over a lot of the key events for the sake of brevity and haven't even touched upon the clan invasion. Each new edition of the rules brings new advancements to the timeline, adds new detail to the lore, and in some cases redraws the map. Each new advancement has also brought with it a raft of novels which add yet more detail and flavour to the universe. Sometimes these changes are driven, or at least influenced, by the players themselves. At Gen Con 1988, attendees were treated to a dramatisation of the wedding between franchise characters Hans Davion and Melissa Steiner, which took place in 3028 in the official timeline. When the time came to exchange gifts, Davion announced that he was giving his bride the entirety of the Capellan Confederation space, and that the invasion was already underway. The attendees had been served cake as part of the ceremony, and when they looked under their plates, they found the names of the planets that were currently being invaded. Audience members were pulled from their seats to fight the ensuing battles on the tabletop, providing the basis for the next round of lore. A year later, in 1989, the first MechWarrior video game launched on PC. This gave players their first chance to sit in the cockpit of a mech. 
If the idea of giant war machines stomping across a futuristic battlefield, firing shells the size of a small family car at each other, whilst in the background mighty space empires plot and scheme, is an appealing one, then good news, there are a multitude of ways you can scratch that itch. After Weissman and Babcock's original company, FASA, or the Freedonian Aeronautics and Space Administration, a nod to the Marx Brothers, closed up shop in 2001, the rights to various parts of the franchise have changed hands several times. Both the tabletop and various incarnations of the digital franchise have continued to be produced under licence by a variety of companies. Today, the board game Battletech, a game of armoured combat is produced by Catalyst Games, while Weissman's harebrained schemes makes the turn-based Battletech for PC. Weissman, along with other former FASA contributors, also consulted on the recently released MechWarrior 5 Mercenaries, from Piranha Games. The two brands, MechWarrior and Battletech, have operated under different licences at different times, but have always been set in the same fictional universe. Let's start with the tabletop version, since that's where the franchise began. The current iteration of the game owes much to its 1984 roots, and while there are supplements that provide rules for role-play and grand strategy, we'll focus here on the core game. In many other tabletop games, there are dozens or even hundreds of models on each side. The focus in Battletech is on a small number of mechs, typically four, known as a lance. The feudal heraldic imagery is a strong and persistent thread through all iterations of the franchise. Players can use stock mechs from a long list of standard designs or create their own by changing the internal components on standard chassis. There are none of the balance issues you have with other tabletop games either, where different factions each have their own distinct troops. Here, every player has access to the same options. Shared ancient technology, remember? Players take it in turn to move their mechs, alternating until all the units have moved. They then repeat the procedure, this time declaring which weapons each mech will fire, and at which target. Finally, they roll dice to determine hits and damage taken. Rinse and repeat until only one player has any mechs left in the fight. Each mech has multiple weapon systems and hit locations, each with their own damage and armour values respectively. Some weapons have a limited amount of ammunition, and the distance travelled in any given turn affects how likely you are to hit. There's a lot to keep track of, so each unit has a card on which the player records the relevant information. Although when they first demonstrated the game in 1984, the creators would burn off bits of the miniatures with a soldering iron to represent damage. Unfortunately, This all means that unless you are very familiar with the intricacies of the various systems, games can become a protracted affair with newer players having to frequently refer back to their respective sheets and the rulebook to work out what to do next. In many ways it's a system which is better suited to a PC game, where the computer can track all the numbers and take care of all the dice rolling, leaving the player free to focus on strategy. This is exactly what Battletech, released in 2018 by Harebrained Schemes, offers. Also developed with Jordan Weissman, this turn-based PC game takes its DNA from the tabletop version, but takes advantage of the conveniences offered by a video game. Battles play out in much the same way as described above, although each mech moves and shoots in the same turn, meaning that the pace compared to the tabletop game is greatly accelerated. Beyond that, there is also a management metagame, which puts you in charge of your own mercenary company. 
You choose which contracts to take, hire mech warriors, upgrade your dropship, and salvage damaged mechs and components from the battlefield, all while managing your monthly finances. As you travel between systems, you'll be given a nice variety of narrative choices based around your mech warriors, which helps to flesh them out as characters and provide background to the universe at large. There's also a story-driven campaign that sees you helping a noble lady from a minor house trying to retake her kingdom from her despotic uncle. But you can ignore that and forge your own career, if you so choose. While Battletech focuses more on strategy, MechWarrior V Mercenaries is planted firmly in the simulation category, as is traditional for the two franchises in terms of perspective. The aim here is to sell you on the illusion that you're piloting a towering, walking war machine. And in this, it succeeds superbly. There are hundreds of models of mechs for you and your lance of AI pilots to choose from, each distinct and interesting in their feel and aesthetic. Salvos of missiles obliterate smaller vehicles, and autocannon rounds land with thunderous explosions. Lasers score ruby lines of molten metal across enemy mechs and set trees in their path ablaze. And there's nothing quite like casually strolling through a three-storey building. This isn't Call of Duty but now you're 15 metres high, though. It's a simulation, which requires careful management of your mech's various heat and weapon systems. Movement is ponderous and weighty and the cooldown between shots on your weapons is lengthy so you're encouraged to make each one count. And while you're an armoured machine of death, poor planning and overconfidence will see you surrounded and punished. This is definitely a simulation first and foremost, though. While as a strategic layer, it's not as personal as that in Harebrained Schemes game, and the story is forgettable. In MechWarrior V Mercenaries, the wider universe and lore serve as a backdrop, glimpsed from your seat in the cockpit. And although the wider events of the 50 years of Battletech history in which it's set are reflected in the galaxy map, little effort is made to engage you with these events if you aren't already aware of them. Battletech is a magnificent and rich sci-fi universe. While it's an undeniably 1980s vision of the future, in the official timeline the USSR falls in 2014, it nevertheless feels grounded in plausibility. The technology used is futuristic, but it has its basis in scientific principles understood today, aside from faster-than-light travel. The enemy isn't space elves or interdimensional horrors, it's humanity itself, doing what we've always done, fighting wars for power, territory and resources. Because of this, the universe encourages a very personal level of storytelling, rather than the traditional good versus evil or the rather staid Defenders of the Galaxy formats. The stories told in the games from the Battletech universe feel refreshingly down-to-earth. A war for a small corner of a vast universe isn't going to change the power balance of interstellar empires, and the hunt to find a particularly rare piece of lost technology isn't going to change the course of a centuries-old conflict. In Battletech, you fight for three things. Honour, money, and glory. Maybe with a dash of revenge on the side. Board Game Review. Lifeform. In space, no one can hear you check for rules clarifications. 
One of my favourite things to come out of the 40th anniversary year of Ridley Scott's classic sci-fi horror film Alien is, by coincidence, a detailed homage and simulation. I don't know if it was planned for release on the anniversary, but it's certainly timely. Lifeform, published in 2019 by Hall or Nothing Productions, is designer Mark Chaplin's detailed love letter to Alien. And let me be clear, we're talking about the first movie. No soldiers, no weapons, only fear and death in the dark. All but one of the players control crew members who are trying to fill an escape shuttle with supplies and leave before the self-destruct timer hits zero. The remaining player controls an indestructible creature which attempts to hunt the crew one by one. Even if the crew make it to the shuttle, a canny hunter can use various tactics to try and stow away with them, prompting a final desperate showdown. For the crew players, Lifeform is an extremely tense game. The creature player actually moves two figures around the ship. One is the real alien, and the other is a sensor ghost. A physical representation of the scanner glitches and strange noises coming from ventilation shafts. They both move the same way, but only the real alien can make a kill. The identity of the true creature is hidden from the crew players. The creature also has the ability to slow crew movement, either by turning off the lights in rooms or deploying terror tokens, single card story events which the crew must overcome if they enter a room with a token. The game moves at a fairly slow pace. The ship is large and most movement is a single room at a time. I'd normally make this as a criticism, but Lifeform's primary goal is to create and maintain terror. Movement requires playing a card with a move icon. Most of the cards do have the move icon on them somewhere, but do you really want to waste a valuable and rare flamethrower card simply to move? You could pick up more cards in the hope of gaining cheaper movement, but then picking up cards advances the self-destruct timer. The alien usually moves slowly rather like the original slow-moving Terminator. It may not be fast, but it just never stops coming. And then occasionally it has a terrifying burst of speed, leaping through two rooms to make an attack, or suddenly appearing out of nowhere in a room connected by a vent. The crew have some survival tools they can use, but none of them are decisive. There are cards which allow crew members to run two rooms, but these are negated by terror or blackout rooms. There are cattle prods and flamethrowers, and while these will drive the alien back, they serve to enrage the creature and unlock extra resources for it. The ultimate indignity is when an attack would be repelled by a cattle prod, only for the lifeform player to reveal a cancel cattle prod card. Because, much like the 1979 horror masterpiece, crew death is sudden and instant. There are no hit points. If the creature enters a room and that player cannot play a valid counter, that character dies instantly. There's a good reason every human player is given two crew members to control and optional backup roles. There's simply no way of keeping the whole crew alive. Knocked out crew players can take the role of either the ship's cat or the mainframe computer. They no longer progress the escape, but can mess with the alien and protect the remaining crew members. Lifeform succeeds where most one versus many games fail in that playing as the alien is just as satisfying as playing at being a crew member. Too often in games of this type, the antagonist player is forced to play either a slightly different game, such as with Fury of Dracula's hidden movement cards, or ends up playing a dungeon master role, curating the experience for the real players. The creature in life form plays the same way the crew do, 
only with varied abilities and a different victory condition. In fact, if Lifeform has a flaw, it's that its love for Alien is such that it eschews some essential streamlining which would be necessary in any other game. It contains various set pieces which require additional rules to simulate and often come at the expense of flow. For example, once aboard the shuttle prior to launch, a player can spend shuttle resources to electrify the rooms near the shuttle, driving the creature away from the evacuation zone. There's the shuttle-bound final duel with the creature, which uses symbols on the player cards which have been unused up to this point. There's a complex combination of rules needed to work out whether the alien has actually stowed aboard. These are all wonderful moments and highly thematic to the story, but they do require additional rules, which, certainly for the first few games, will require you to return to the rulebook for clarifications. Lifeform is a game which has deliberately chosen to shun elegance and simplicity in favour of delivering a truly cinematic experience every time. I thoroughly recommend Lifeform. I am personally glad to have its detailed and loving homage to a classic, in spite of its quirks. If all I wanted was to chase creatures through corridors and rooms, there are a plethora of board games which offer that. But Lifeform is one of the very few which give the terrifying experience of escape from a deadly and malevolent hunter. If you're not particularly a fan of the original Alien movie, it's still a great and unique game. However, if you are a fan of Alien, you owe it to yourself to get and play a copy of Lifeform. The Luminaries. Choose your social media adventure. Late at night on June the 2nd, 2019, author Susan Dennard posted a rather unusual tweet. On the morning of your 16th birthday, you awaken to a tap-tap-tap against the window. It's dawn. The world outside is a foggy, sun-pinked grey. After rubbing the sleep from your eyes, you blink and find a crow at your window. You A. Open the window, or B. Go back to sleep. This was the beginning of The Luminaries, a six-month-long adventure played by readers around the world. Its protagonist was Wednesday Winnie Wednesday, trainee member of a secret monster-hunting society known as the Luminaries, and she was about to have the longest and most eventful birthday of her life. Every day, Denard wrote two or three tweets leading up to a single choice, conducted by Twitter poll. These 500-odd words a day proved to be one of the most entertaining, and the most gripping, reading experiences of this writer's year. Like many people who grew up in the UK during the 80s and the 90s, game books were a much-loved staple of my childhood. Often called Choose Your Own Adventure Books, after one of the most successful and long-running series, game books set out to tell an interactive story, giving the reader a sense of control over the narrative. Told in second person and in the present tense, the books allowed their readers to take on the persona of the lead character and choose what they would do, guiding them through the book's story. This was often an action hero type, but sometimes an average person caught up in unusual circumstances. Each choice would involve turning to a different page number and reading a marked section. Although most gamebooks had only one true ending, the other endings often involving the player character's unfortunate demise, there were generally multiple paths to this eventual success. Some series, such as Joe Devere's Lone Wolf, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston's Fighting Fantasy, or Mark Smith and Jamie Thompson's The Way of the Tiger, also included a combat mechanic, requiring players to keep track of their own and their enemy's health, and roll dice to attack. 
The use of a Dungeons & Dragons-like mechanic was hardly surprising. UK gamebooks deliberately intended to reproduce the experience of a tabletop role-playing game for a single player, and the aforementioned series had their roots in their author's Dungeons & Dragons game worlds. As video games became more sophisticated and easily accessible, they provided a new format for solo role-playing. Gamebooks gradually declined in popularity, with the original publications of the Choose Your Own Adventure and Lone Wolf series both coming to an end in 1998. However, they were not simply replaced by dungeon-crawling computer role-playing games such as Diablo. Interactive fiction games, such as the Zork series, had developed alongside gamebooks, and while their published cousins floundered, these text adventures continued to flourish. Choose Your Own Adventure has seen a resurgence of interest in the last decade, with a number of different attempts made to adapt the format for a modern audience. Ebooks have been the most obvious and successful choice, with both repackaged gamebook classics and new companies such as Choice of Games doing well on the mobile market. Joe DeVere's Lone Wolf was reimagined as a video game, combining choice mechanics and classical role-playing game turn-based combat. Released first in chapters on mobile platforms and then ported as a complete game to consoles, it was a modest success, although the mostly positive rating on Steam sums up the critical response. The planned follow-up, a Pokemon Go-style augmented reality game, is still in limbo after an attempted Kickstarter raised only half its desired funding. In 2015, Ian Pears' Arcadia, a sprawling interactive story available on a bespoke app for the iPad, also experimented with the medium. Pears made use of some of the established design elements of gamebooks, but his work was more of an exploration of intertwining stories. Arcadia was shortlisted for the Clark Award that year. In 2016, Tin Man Games released the fighting fantasy classic The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. This had been funded by a Kickstarter in 2015. The gamebook had first been released in 1982, adapted into a video game in 1984, turned into a board game in 1986, made into a role-playing adventure module in 2003, and then turned into another computer game, this time for the Nintendo DS, in 2009. The 2003 module is currently being adapted again for the fighting fantasy role-playing game system, and Foxy Ace and Music Production announced in 2017 that they had acquired a license to make an audio version, also released that year. In 2018, Z-Man Games brought out Choose Your Own Adventure, House of Danger, a cooperative board game. It included much of the original book's text on narrative cards, while adding a couple of new mechanics, such as dice rolling and item collection. It's unclear how far the experience of playing the game differs from simply reading the book. The number one complaint in reviews is that the consequences of choices are too large and too arbitrary, and other aspects seem tacked on, but the game seems to have performed well enough and maybe the start of a series, as Choose Your Own Adventure, War with the Evil Power Master, was released the following year. Other franchises have experimented with the medium. Josh Whedon's Dollhouse TV series launched Save Hazel in 2009, and Campfire NYC have delivered a variety of interactive transmedia stories as part of their marketing campaigns for HBO, but all of these were as subsidiary works to generate audiences for the main production. Probably the most high-profile interactive fiction venture of the last few years was Black Mirror Bandersnatch, an interactive movie which detailed the struggles of a young programmer as he attempted to adapt a classic fantasy novel into a video game. Typically for the series, the film is both a solid horror offering and a dry metatextual commentary on the nature of interactive storytelling. 
In the best ending, which can only be arrived at by making him do some truly despicable things, the protagonist explains that the secret to interactive fiction is not to give the player too much choice. They feel like they're shaping the story, but the writer is always the one who's really in control. All of which is to say that when I started reading, or perhaps playing, Susan Dennard's The Luminaries, I thought I was in very familiar territory. Its second-person, present-tense narration, simple choices, and immediate leap into the action felt almost quaint, a throwback to the game books I'd loved as a child. But the longer I played, the more I began to feel that the Luminary's social media setting was actually doing something more innovative with the choose-your-own-adventure format than many of the other attempts of recent years. For a start, the fact that the story was delivered in tiny installments and the knowledge that this was a one-off experience lent an unusual weight to the individual decisions. Pick poorly, or just in a way that contradicted the protagonist's previous strategy, and the consequences might take days of real time to play out, and end with the plot barely having been advanced. This tension was heightened after Winnie died twice during an attempt to cross a vampire-infested gym that took a full month to play out in the real world. Denard warned her readers that if she died a third time, that would be the end of the story. I am by nature the kind of person who saves video games compulsively every few minutes, and reads game books with my fingers crammed between the pages to mark every significant choice. The knowledge that that was not an option here, that choosing wrongly meant not simply that I would see more possible outcomes of the story, but that it might be over, meant that I paid much more attention and thought a lot more carefully about the possible consequences. The communal nature of the decision-making also felt new and interesting. The Luminaries had somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 players, meaning that any individual vote was unlikely to sway the decision. Instead, readers replied to the tweets, making arguments for their preferred strategies and pointing out the possible downsides of others. They scrutinised previous instalments for evidence and constructed elaborate theories about the universe's lore. A late-game poll that looked likely to kill a popular character had many readers recruiting all their friends to participate in order to change the result. It eventually garnered around 500 additional votes, and the desired course correction was made. A mechanic Denard introduced whereby a 50-50 split vote caused Winnie to attempt to take both actions at once also saw several key polls being carefully gamed by invested players to try to produce a perfectly balanced result. The Luminaries was not a story in which the author was dead. Denard did not simply write the tweets, but remained active in the subsequent threads, giving hints as to possible outcomes, filling in details about the world's background, and drawing attention to fans she thought made strong arguments for a particular course of action. At the very end of the story, she admitted to gaming the system a little, removing one negative consequence of an earlier decision in order to reward her faithful players with the happy ending she felt they deserved. Perhaps this undermined the dramatic tension, but it also added to the sense that The Luminaries was essentially a collaborative venture between writer and readers, in some ways closer to improvised theatre than to either a game or a book. The brevity of the Twitter format was a mixed blessing for the story. On the one hand, it threw the readers immediately into the action, and helped keep up a sense of pace in the narrative despite the fact that relatively little happened on any given day. On the other, some key aspects of the text couldn't help but feel underdeveloped. The Luminaries takes place in a complex fantasy setting, but the majority of that setting didn't make it as far as the page, as it were. Interested readers needed to rely on the The Luminaries FAQ hashtag for background information. It would probably be possible to read all of the story tweets and come away without knowing who exactly the luminaries are or what they do. Perhaps more importantly, major relationships, such as that between Winnie and her mother, are only briefly sketched out, and consequently some of the drama could feel lightweight. 
At times, these sketched relationships skirted on the edge of cliché. When a character was introduced as Ugh Jay, readers immediately envisaged him as a love interest who had a slap-slap kiss dynamic with the protagonist, and they were absolutely right. The Luminaries was never intended to be a choose-your-own-adventure story. It started life in 2013 as a pitch for a duology of young adult books that was ultimately rejected. Although the storyline for the Luminaries Twitter thread was new, its characters and setting originate with that pitch. After the thread garnered so much engagement, Susan Dennard, who's become a New York Times best-selling author in the years since that first rejection, now plans to write and publish the novels she originally envisaged. It's hard to tell how far the luminaries in book form will replicate the success of its social media counterpart. The thread had a lightning-in-a-bottle feeling to it. This was a unique experience unfolding in real time and being shared with a dedicated community. As interested as I am to see some aspects of its universe better fleshed out, I don't expect the books to have that same sense of magic about them. Still, no matter what the future holds for Winnie and her friends, for six months they brought something genuinely fresh and exciting to a formula I love. For that, they will always have a special place in my heart. Book Review Children of Ruin In humanity's distant future, we share a terraformed planet with pig-sized sentient spiders. Earth is a ruin, and our civilization has been reset after a devastating war. We detect a signal from a faraway world. One of the other planets our ancestors terraformed. Off we go to investigate. Adrian Tchaikovsky, whom we interviewed in issue two, is one of Britain's most popular contemporary science fiction and fantasy authors. Children of Ruin and its predecessor, 2015's excellent Children of Time, are this writer's hard sci-fi. He deals with ideas like species uplift, terraforming, and space travel according to the current thinking in those fields. No warp drives or using the force here. This book's events take place in a different place and time with different characters, so it can be approached on its own, but the story may baffle without the context that reading Children of Time gives. Several times throughout, you might find yourself smiling at how plausible the preposterous events seem. This is a novel in which octopuses and spiders fly around in spaceships, but so much thought has gone into questions like what would an octopus society be like, and how would spiders communicate, that at no point does anything seem silly. Some of the most pleasing passages are those dealing with what an octopus's or spider's mind would be like. Tchaikovsky credits the excellent Other Minds, written in 2016 by Peter Godfrey Smith, for informing his depiction of the octopi. They are more alien than most aliens in fiction, with a distributed brain and a language based on colourful images. The spiders receive a similar treatment. This is a more thoughtful exploration of what alien life would be like than most, despite not featuring many actual aliens. But there are some. And here too, Tchaikovsky delights with smart and original ideas, like a slime mold that encodes its experiences at the atomic layer. Unlike Children of Time, this story also features some truly memorable horror sequences. They're not jarring, but they are horrific. The author appreciates the little details that make for true terror, like the awful knowledge a character has that a parasite is killing him, for example. Tchaikovsky would write great horror novels. The writing is lovely, as ever. The vocabulary is thesaurus-bustingly wide. I recommend reading on an ebook, as it'll save you from reaching for the dictionary every three or four minutes. Character sometimes suffers in science fiction. The bigger the ideas, the fewer dimensions the characters often seem to have. But these are proper people, weird and flawed. 
The introverted, iconoclastic Senkovi and the pompous, well-meaning Baltiel stand out. I actually found these characters more compelling than those in Children of Time. Their quirks drive the plot. It's not perfect, though. One reader on our team found it more serious and factual than the first, though he didn't find this to the book's detriment. More seriously, the climax feels more muddled than Children of Time. The climax rests upon a convoluted set of groups and motivations, including a ship AI trying to reason with a slime mold inside a chip in a man's head, two spaceships flying towards them flashing coloured patterns at each other, a spider and human held captive by octopuses, and a clutch of maroon space travellers trying to get off an alien world. It takes some following, in a way that the us versus them climax of Children of Time didn't. Also, for this reader at least, the moral takeaway seems trite. At risk of spoiling, think Forster's only connect. This is perhaps a light and saccharine dessert after the meatiness of the main course. However, these are minor quibbles. Children of Ruin is brilliant. It rises above a lot of genre fiction with delightful writing and deft handling of character and perspective, and world-building that is uncomfortably thorough. This is a novel of big ideas and small touches, mastery of the micro and the macro. Children of Ruin by Adrian Tchaikovsky is published by Pan Macmillan. Play safe. Consent in gaming. Role-playing games have come a long way since 1974, when Dungeons & Dragons was first released. The hobby has become much more accepted than it once was, and standards have improved commensurately. Today, many players crave different things in their games. What evolved from war games into a system that was intended to simulate small unit tactics now demands so much more. More complex narrative structures, as well as rule systems, to support and create them. Systems like Fate, Cortex and Powered by the Apocalypse are increasingly popular because they move away from simply trying to mechanise combat, but to mechanise the story. With narrative beats, genre limitations and allowing the players to take more narrative control than they could back in the days when the Games Master was in charge. However, with greater nuance of story, more complexity of theme and a more aware audience comes the desire to include more difficult material. This isn't entirely new. Games such as Call of Cthulhu have always tackled horror and insanity and even Dungeons & Dragons has long included monsters like the giant spider, potentially problematic for arachnophobes. For a long time, this hasn't been considered a big problem. Tabletop role-playing games have relied on the fact that Games Master usually knows the players well, except at conventions, but that's a somewhat different style and challenge again. The Games Master has written the game with their players in mind, and they're all friends. If there's a problem, they can just talk about it, right? Maybe not. It can be difficult to bring up problems with friends. How you do it without being accusatory towards the games master, who you know has poured lots of time and effort into this storyline and world. What if the other players think you're being too sensitive? What if the issue is simply something that you don't want to have to talk about, especially with a group? And of course, There is also convention play, where the games master is likely to have never met the players before. There may have been an opportunity to discuss things online, but it's not guaranteed. Games masters can be encouraged to include content warnings on their games for any potentially difficult material they might include, 
as well as a blurb for the game. But different people have different comfort levels. How many games masters would think to warn about the inclusion of spiders? There's also the element of surprise. Games masters might not want to give too many hints of what is to come. And so, safety tools are starting to emerge for the role-playing table. One of the simplest and most well-known is the X card, first created by John Stavropoulos in 2016. Used a great deal at conventions, where the games master isn't going to know the players, it has started to gain more traction in the home space as well. It's also used at gaming stores, where the player base might stay fairly constant, but also include new faces from time to time. It simply states that every player, including the games master, has access to an X card, simply a piece of card with an X on it. They might have one each, or simply put one on the table within easy reach. If anybody invokes the X card, then play stops. If the problematic component can be removed, it is, and play can resume happily. If not, then the scene comes to an end and play resumes. If it isn't clear what the problematic element is, then the games master can ask, but an essential part of the rules behind the X card is that no explanation is required of the player that invoked it. Of course, it might still be difficult to actually invoke the X card for the first time. The system suggests that the games master encourages people to use it for anything they don't want to see in the game rather than simply high-risk, triggering content. In order to both normalise it, as well as to make sure that everyone understands it. The system has received criticism. Some say that it's a very blunt tool where a one-size-fits-all solution is inappropriate. Some people worry that somebody will invoke the card about a subject which is inherent to their scenario, for example, invoking it because they don't like how drow are handled at the start of Adventure Set in the Underdark. Some people complain that it opens the game to abuse because somebody could X-card a bad role because they don't like the potential outcome. Another popular system that sidesteps these issues is referred to as Lines and Veils, which was coined back in 2004 by Ron Edwards in his book Sex and Sorcery, a supplement for the sorcerer role-playing game. It involves having a discussion with the players before a game starts about what they want to draw a line under and what they want to place behind a veil. Anything with a line under it simply cannot happen in the game. It doesn't happen in play, it doesn't occur in character backstories, it doesn't even get brought up in conversation. Anything behind a veil can be alluded to, and can be included in the story but shouldn't occur live. And if about to, the scene fades to black. Commonly, for example, non-consensual sex might have a line, whilst consensual sex is behind a veil. Similarly, different levels of phobias could be discussed in this style. Some players might be fine with hearing about spiders, but don't want to actually encounter giant ones in the dungeon. For others, even mentioning them might cause a panic. This is a system that I expect most tables have picked up largely intuitively over the years, as mine has. And that last part is what is seen as one of the weaknesses of this system. The fact that it does require that conversation from the start. The initial discussions the system requires can themselves be as uncomfortable for people as when topics they're sensitive to emerge in play. As with the X card, there should be no need for explanations, but that still doesn't necessarily make that conversation easier. 
Over years of experience as a games master, or if you're with friends, you can pick up on this stuff, but this often, or necessarily means, that mistakes have been made along the way in order for you to gain that knowledge. A third popular system is called Script Change, designed by Brie Bo Sheldon in 2017. It's similar to Xcard, but more nuanced and therefore more complex. Script Change originally included three cards, or instructions, that can be used. Rewind, backing up to a point in a scene so that it can be repeated, whilst avoiding a problematic element. Fast forward, if a player feels that need to fade to black or simply move forward in time. And pause, to call a pause or a break if things are too intense. In 2018, it was updated to include three more cards. Instant replay, allowing a pause to discuss recent action, either to seek clarification or to share enthusiasm about something that happened. Frame by frame, if you're worried that something might cause a problem and you want to play the scene with care. And resume, play as normal, to be used by the player that instigated the script change. This system comes with many benefits. It can help the pacing of the game outside of issues of triggering and problematic content. I'm sure we've all played through a scene that was far longer than it needed to be, with the characters just engaged in small talk because they're waiting for the games master to end it, and the games master thinking they're just enjoying the interaction. A call to fast forward could fix that, for example. Like Lines and Veils, It also encourages a discussion before play starts, but a more vague one that simply encourages the players to agree on a rating for the game, like with films and games, rather than necessitating exhaustive lists of troublesome topics to be drawn up in advance. Most recently, Monty Cook Games released a book called Consent in Gaming by Sean K. Reynolds and Shana Germain. This book goes into some introductory concepts around consent and keeping your gaming space safe. It briefly discusses some of the tools mentioned here and also introduces a checklist which a games master can give to their players before the game begins. Like script change, it encourages the use of movie ratings to provide a quick guide for content expectations. It also lists potential triggers, asking players to rate them as green, indicating consent for this to be included, yellow, indicating that this should be veiled or offstage, or red, hardline, should not be included. It also provides space for players to include additional topics or themes. This provides many of the benefits we've seen in earlier systems, but with the additional benefit of some distance. It can be easier to fill in a form and give to the games master to collate than to discuss sensitive matters in person. The book encourages players to use other systems alongside it, such as the X card. Obviously, it's not perfect. No tool ever will be. For example, it requires advanced preparation, so it wouldn't work well at conventions. There is some resistance in the tabletop community to using these tools. Not only has the community split into camps over which is the best to use, but there have been several complaints about hypothetical situations in which players might use them in bad faith rather as the safety mechanism they are designed to be. Some argue that they shouldn't be needed. The games master should know their players well enough and people should feel comfortable to discuss things if required. This writer has only ever acted as games master for friends and has made mistakes despite having what should be the ideal situation. I've seen players become uncomfortable with the behaviour of other players and I've introduced material which later I realised I shouldn't have. I've wanted to discuss not doing things with players and felt not able to 
even though they are friends. So I'm glad we have these tools, and I look forward to seeing them improve with discussion and use rather than going away. Mini of the Month, Authorised Bounty Hunter. Jonathan Tan, Authorised Bounty Hunter. John turned slightly from his position at the bar. A small movement, just enough to let his peripheral vision slide over the man who addressed him. The newcomer was dressed down, no tie, but clearly corporate. His shirt alone would cost more than an average family makes in a month. He wasn't alone. Standing well back was a goon trying to look inconspicuous and failing. There would be a second one somewhere, likely to his left. John nodded slightly at the speaker and turned back to his drink, resting untouched on the countertop. The lights in the bar were low and dry ice produced a cheap haze to enhance privacy. Shapes moved in the coloured strobes and music pounded, muffling the many conversations from all but the most sophisticated filters. Something I can help you with? As a matter of fact, yes. I'm told you're the best. John gave a little shrug as the man seated himself on the barstool to his right. The ID broadcast from the man's cube said that he was Daryl McAllister. John's own cube ran across reference with the Infosys social media platforms. Age 43. Married to Cheryl McAllister. Three kids. Executive management with the Kurosawa Corporation. Daryl summoned the bartender with a nod and ordered a drink. You want another? He asked John who responded with a brief shake of his head. The red flag started coming up as John's queue performed a second and third tier search. The wife and kids had social media entries, but the extended family were coming up blanks or suspiciously flat. Darrell wasn't who he said he was. John shifted his weight a fraction and glanced left, trying to pick out the location of the second goon. He was conscious of the reassuring weight of the pistol nestled in the small of his back and the knife in his boot. Why don't you cut to the chase and tell me what you want, so I can get back to my drink? Not Daryl smiled. I don't take private commissions, John added. Authorised status came with specific licensing requirements. John's cube was already piecing together the background clues to not Daryl's real identity. He fought the flight or fight response building within him, and shifted his body posture slightly, his hand reaching behind under his coat to touch the weapon concealed there. Not Daryl leaned on the bar, drink in hand, and grinned like a shark. Wasn't always that way, was it, John? Authorised bounty hunting was a complicated profession. In my humble opinion, Corvus Belly produced the finest metal miniatures, intended for their sci-fi skirmish game, Infinity. Many of the early models were very manga-inspired and often a little cheesecake, but over the time the aesthetic has improved, Gone are the provocative female sculpts of soldiers in miniskirts and crop tops. These days female models are armed and equipped, the same as their male counterparts. There are a number of authorised bounty hunter sculpts. While I like all of them, this one, with his bulky combat armour and trench coat combo, is the meanest. The model captured my imagination the moment I set eyes on it. If you haven't encountered it, it is well worth checking out Infinity at www.infinitythegame.com Not only are the miniatures objects of beauty, but the game rules are excellent and available for download free of charge. To see this month's miniature, refer to the print version of this issue. (laughs) 
Pulp Pioneers, Amazing Stories magazine. There are many claims a magazine can make to their audience. Some have the widest circulation in their home country. Others have a stable of upcoming writers who consistently produce amazing work. But one magazine set out to publish exclusively science fiction stories, and so began a long tradition in genre publishing. Amazing Stories, which launched in 1926, has had a long and some would say colourful history. It has aged, faded and mutated, changing formats, contents and ethics through the years. Some of those years with scandal, others of ambition, and indeed some of ridicule. It is the primogenitor of pulp sci-fi and also its almanac, a sort of litmus test as to the state of the genre. It demonstrated that genre fiction was a viable way to be successful as a pulp magazine, and spawned a battery of other publications to take their piece of the market. In the early 20th century, science fiction was rapidly establishing itself as a popular genre in the public eye. The works of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells at the tail end of the 19th century had kick-started the idea of science applied to fanciful pursuits, mainly those of exploration and adventure. And so, in the vein of pulp magazines like Weird Tales or The Boy's Own Paper, Amazing Stories began with a focus on subjects such as the frontier of space or the surface of distant worlds. Hugo Gernsback, the founder, saw interest in articles about real scientific achievements as an opportunity to push a business model based on both educating and entertaining the magazine's audience. For all this upswing in science fiction awareness, new stories were not the primary focus of Amazing Stories. During the early days, it mainly featured reprints of classic stories from the previous decades of sci-fi. This may have been a poor strategy, as by 1929 the magazine was filing for bankruptcy and seeking new owners. It was sold to Bernard McFadden and his imprint, Tech Publications. The 1930s offered mixed blessings to both the genre and the magazine itself. The Great Depression cut into profits and print runs shrank drastically. At the same time, public demand for pulp magazines and their outlandish stories of escapism and heroism rose higher than ever before. But competition was fierce, and readers had little spare cash for entertainment, only maintaining one or two subscriptions at a time. Despite being the forerunner, Amazing Stories struggled to compete with Weird Tales and other contemporaries. One of Amazing Stories' greatest controversies came in the form of a short story by Richard Shaver, a long-time reader, titled I Remember Lemuria. Published in 1945, it told the saga of prehistoric civilizations in a typical sword and sorcery manner, save for one crucial detail. Amazing Stories presented it as a piece of partial historical truth. This claim quickly attracted ridicule towards the magazine, to the point at which it was decided that further Shaver material was to be sharply limited. Shaver himself was absolutely convinced that there was an ancient, sinister civilization that continued to exert influence over modern culture without people realising it. With such a varied and turbulent history, it becomes unhelpful to regard Amazing Stories as a single publication. From a business point of view, it seems to have been a nightmare. Even post-depression, the magazine struggled to turn a profit, and its fundamental structure seemed to change with every new owner and editor. It's likely that the only thing that kept the magazine from bankruptcy completely was the growing interest in science fiction among the public. After a failed attempt to launch a series of tie-in novels in the mid-50s, the magazine was extended in 1958 to serialise full novels, such as Ursula de Gwynne's Lathe of Heaven, published in the March 71 volume. 
It's interesting to note that the volume also contains an advert for unlocking extrasensory perception and an interview with the Deputy Guardian for the US Church of Scientology. It was far from the only pulp sci-fi magazine that flirted with pseudoscience in that period, but Amazing Stories seemed to maintain a P.T. Barnum-esque method of presenting viewpoints and stories as fact when they weren't. The resulting ridicule, however, seemed to only enhance the magazine's popularity. It's arguably this hybrid of award-winning fiction and controversial non-fiction pieces that has given Amazing Stories such a firm following, nearly a century after its inception. Controversy within Amazing Stories seems to go beyond fiction being passed off as reality. The short story A Girl Like You by Ted White covers an America in which apartheid has been implemented and a sort of civil breakdown has occurred. The story portrays a group of black gorillas slaughtering a white family and their menials. The politics and language used in the story itself strike a modern reader as astonishingly racist, even considering that it was published nearly 50 years ago. In 1980, Amazing Stories merged with Fantastic, its fantasy counterpart, in an effort to combat failing sales. Looking at the issue for 1981, things seemed to be as polished as one could hope for. An Ian Miller front cover, a story by Roger Zelazny in top billing, and the sort of classic early 80s layout that you'd find in the best issues of White Dwarf. The magazine even managed to snag a short story by a certain George R. R. Martin, Unsound Variations. Yet, the big names and extensive reworks failed to keep the magazine from being sold again in 1982, to Tactical Studies Rules Incorporated, of Dungeons & Dragons fame, before their fateful buyout by Wizards of the Coast, who then passed it over to Paizo. The latest available sales data is from 1994, when Amazing Stories sold 7,851 copies in total. All of these transfers saw the releases becoming more and more limited, ending up with a digital-only run that lasted from 2005 to 2006. Then came the magazine's longest hiatus, which only ended in 2012 when the magazine relaunched in a digital-only format. Amazing Stories is a magazine with a formidable and turbulent history, but nothing has yet succeeded in killing it off. What does its future hold? 2026 isn't far off, and sci-fi has never been more popular. Why watch Babylon 5? Few television shows were as seminal, or have aged as badly, as Babylon 5. Posters for it now look like awkward cosplay, rather than a groundbreaking science fiction show that redefined what television could be. For a modern audience, this can be hard to get past, and arguably the characteristics that made the show great in the 1990s are widespread today. So why is it brilliant? Babylon 5 was something different from its conception. Moving away from the monster of the week formula typical for genre fiction shows of the time, J. Michael Straczynski's novel for television set out instead to tell one epic, united story. The programme's five seasons each cover a year in the life of the eponymous space station, with coherent arcs for all of the major characters, as well as larger political and military developments. Although the plot underwent several big changes from Straczynski's original vision, more on this later, the show remains a significant, almost unique achievement in long-form storytelling on the small screen. We begin in 2258. Humans have joined a larger galactic society, having been gifted with faster-than-light travel technology by the Centauri, one of the series' important alien races. We have risen quickly to a position of military and political power, and fought and eventually made peace with the Minbari. The repercussions of this war form one of the show's long-term arcs. 
Babylon 5 itself is a human-built space station in neutral territory, intended as a base for trade and diplomatic negotiations, the last best hope for peace in the galaxy. The series follows the lives of the station's command staff and some of its most significant alien ambassadors through a time of political upheaval, as it becomes clear that current events are being shaped by a much older conflict between ancient, powerful forces. So far, so space opera. But where Babylon 5 excels is combining the epic sweep of its plot with smaller, more personal arcs which feel every bit as vital and involving. A recovering alcoholic draws on his own experience to gently interrogate a friend about the extent of his drug use. An atheist wrestles with whether she should mourn her father in the traditions of his religion. A mixed-species couple confront the fact that one of them will inevitably die decades before the other. The idea of this grown-up approach to science fiction, with a focus on character and real-world issues, was baked into Babylon 5's premise. Straczynski was adamant that there would be no kids and no cute robots before the show was even in production. The closest it comes is a single episode appearance from a grumpy artificial intelligence, voiced hilariously by Harlan Ellison. More important to the effect, though, was the series' commitment to its arcs. In another kind of show, a character might become addicted to drugs, recognise they have a problem, and successfully kick the habit within a single 50-minute episode. In Babylon 5, these events take place over the better part of two seasons, freeing them from a cramped artificial time frame and allowing both the problem and the resolution to feel more genuinely meaningful. The series forcefully rejects the end-of-episode reset button. Actions have consequences. Relationships change. Characters die. At one point, an entire sapient species is rendered functionally extinct. Crucially, the major alien characters are given as much room to breathe and grow as the human ones. Londo and Jakar, the ambassadors of the Centaurian Nun, are arguably the series' most beloved characters, and certainly the ones who undergo the most profound changes from their initial appearances in Season 1 to where we leave them at the show's end. Although Babylon 5 struggles with the genre's frequent problem of monocultural aliens, notably an early episode demonstrates that humans have at least as many religions as they do in the present day, whereas every other species has only one, the time and personal growth allowed to individual alien characters gives the setting heft, and preserves the feeling of real stakes in the major conflict. Babylon 5 also took advantage of its focus on aliens and grown-ups to cast a wider net for talent than many other contemporary shows. Several of the series' main characters are played by actors who would, by normal Hollywood standards, be confined to bit parts and not given the opportunity to take a leading role. Mira Ferlin, who plays Minbari Ambassador Delenn, was an acclaimed actor in her native Croatia, but was given almost no on-screen work in English before being cast in the series. Others, such as Andreas Katsoulas, Jakar, Peter Jurassic, Londo, and Stephen First, Veer, had had successful careers as character actors, but typically only appeared in small parts. All of them give truly exceptional performances and provide some of the series' best moments. The show has a consistent interest in tackling weighty issues. Although there is an occasional sciencey puzzle or powerful alien artefact for the protagonist to deal with, most of their problems are more mundane. The setting is key to this. The conflict between the station's position as an asset of Earth's military and its mission as a diplomatic outpost is one of the main engines driving the arc plot for the first few seasons. Another major theme is how fascist regimes rise to power and how they stay there, dealt with from the point of view of characters who resist from the outset, those who compromise as long as possible, and those who are initially won over before they realise what they've got themselves into. 
Issues of class are also present. One episode is dedicated to a worker strike in favour of safer conditions. The station is home to a permanent underclass of people who live in Down Below, which is essentially a slum. The hopelessness of this life is a plot point in several different episodes, and the seeming impossibility of dealing with it is one of the major things that differentiates Babylon 5 from more utopian visions of the future like Star Trek. The series' approach to LGBT themes was somewhat stifled by the network. Producers vetoed a kiss between two female characters early in the show's run, and the most clear indication that the two were involved ended up being a confession by one that she thinks she loved the other, after the second character was probably dead. However, later episodes showed two male characters undercover as a married couple. While there are no explicitly queer characters, Babylon 5 at least takes place in a universe where LGBT people definitely exist, and are imagined to have more rights in the future than they did at the time the show was written. Same-sex marriage was not legal anywhere in the world when the episodes were first broadcast. While not a huge stride in representation, this was at least a clear and sincerely meant gesture. One field where Babylon 5 certainly did innovate was technology, being the first television program to use computer-generated effects. The contemporary Star Trek Deep Space Nine created its spaceships using high-quality models and manual rotoscoping techniques. But this was an expensive process. Babylon 5 was made for roughly half of Deep Space Nine's budget, around $800,000 an episode. Straczynski, who already had an interest in computer graphics, saw an opportunity to save money by making the show's effects purely digital. The animation was generated on 24 networked Amiga 2000 machines, boosted by the Video Toaster expansion card. Although the resulting product looks fairly primitive and unconvincing to modern eyes, it does get the job done on the storytelling front, and it undoubtedly broke new ground. One of the points of controversy in Babylon 5's early years was its similarity to Deep Space Nine. The two shows both took place on a space station in the aftermath of a major war, where many of the conflicts are driven by relations between alien races. As Deep Space Nine debuted slightly earlier than Babylon 5, it premiered on January 3rd, 1993, while Babylon 5's pilot movie was first aired on February 22nd of the same year, some Deep Space Nine fans regarded Babylon 5 as a low-budget rip-off of their show. Meanwhile, the fact that Straczynski had approached Paramount Television, the producers of Deep Space Nine, to make Babylon 5, and been turned down by them, convinced some Babylon 5 fans that Paramount had stolen Straczynski's idea. Straczynski himself said he suspected that Paramount executives may have used some ideas from the show's Bible he provided them with, although he was sure that Deep Space Nine's creators Rick Berman and Michael Piller were innocent of any wrongdoing. It's impossible to know the truth, but it's worth pointing out that the resemblances between the shows are mostly skin deep. By design, they fundamentally take place in very different universes, and both have their merits. Star Trek alumnus and widow of Gene Roddenberry, Marjorie Barrett, eventually made a memorable guest appearance on Babylon 5 in the deliberate attempt to foster peace between the two fan bases. Although it's often stated that Babylon 5's plot was completed by Straczynski before the show even started, this is an oversimplification. Real-life events throughout the series' production had a major impact on the eventual form that the story took. In Straczynski's 1993 synopsis, he outlined a five-season arc, which would be followed by a spin-off series, Babylon Prime, both focused on the character of Jeffrey Sinclair, Michael O'Hare, the station's commander in season one. Tragically, O'Hare began to suffer from serious mental illness, including hallucinations, during the making of the first series. He agreed to continue filming until the end of the season, so as not to jeopardise the show's production, 
but retired shortly afterwards. Sinclair was eventually given a magnificent send-off in a two-part episode of season three. He was replaced in the main show by Captain John Sheridan, Bruce Boxleitner. Although Sheridan has several characteristics in common with Sinclair, including sharing their initials with the show's creator, his character arc is quite different to the one that was originally planned. Another casting change occurred when Andrea Thompson, who played Talia Winters, left the show. Although there is a good deal of speculation, there is no official explanation of why this happened. Some of Talia's intended plotline was scrapped, and the rest given to returning character Lita Alexander, Patricia Tolman, who had previously appeared in the pilot movie. Perhaps most significantly, the primetime entertainment network which was producing the show was shut down during the making of the fourth season. With the question of whether a fifth season would be possible up in the air, Straczynski shuffled his planned plotlines so as to provide a resolution for all the major story arcs by the end of season four. The result was a fourth season which was intense, fast-paced and gripping. But when the fifth season was greenlit, it proved a somewhat underwhelming finish to the show. Although there are wonderful individual episodes in season five, its major arcs, understandably, feel understructured and less well-considered compared to what came before. Babylon 5 is one of those shows, the kind that people obsess over, re-watch every year, and drive their friends mad by trying desperately to convince them that they should all watch it too. So, should you? Naturally, it depends on your taste. The first season can be hard to get into. It's a slow build-up to a main plot that doesn't really get going until the last couple of episodes. New viewers may be put off by the ropey CGI or by some of the acting. Michael O'Hare was mostly a stage actor who'd arguably never really settled into his leading role on screen. And Mira Ferlin is hampered in the first season by her character's lack of eyebrows, an issue fixed by a redesign in season two. The things that made Babylon 5 revolutionary we now take for granted. It's no longer a surprise to see a genre show grappling with serious questions of politics and religion or laying out a dense and intricate plotline although the show's multi-season arcs are still some of the longest television has to offer. Most of all, it's impossible to talk about what makes the series so good without spoiling some of its best surprises. In the end, though, it comes down to this. If you love Babylon 5, you really love it. And it's probably worth finding out if you do. Creative Equality Representation in science fiction and fantasy. When it comes to female representation in the media, it's easy to think that we've never had it so good. But on average, a fictional lead character is still straight, white and male, and so are the creatives telling their story. We take a look at this issue in books, films and video games, and at how genre fiction in particular is tackling the challenge of more gender-inclusive storytelling. First, books. The vast majority of the canon of English literature, the work deemed to be the most significant, influential and representative of its period, is written by men. This is hardly surprising. Historically, women had far less access to the things that made authorship possible – an education, financial independence and the room of one's own which Virginia Woolf wrote about in her famous 1928 essay – the room itself both a real consideration and a symbol for the private space and time necessary for any creative undertaking usually denied by motherhood. Although a handful of women, Wolfe among them, along with Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, and some later 20th century authors such as Toni Morrison, are now widely counted among the literary greats, it's still perfectly possible to encounter an English literature curriculum that doesn't include a single female author. 
Take a look at the history of genre fiction, though, and the picture changes. Women were the pioneers of many of the less respectable genres. In 1666, Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle, wrote The Blazing World, which has a good claim to be the first English novel in the genres of science fiction and portal fantasy, like C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. In it, a young woman enters another world through a passage in the North Pole, becomes empress of a kingdom of talking animals, and eventually wages war on her former homeland through the use of submarines towed by fishmen. It's not a book notable for great writing, the prose is nigh-un unreadable to modern eyes, but it's an astonishingly weird and creative work. More famously, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was first published in 1818 when the author was 20, was a foundational text for both science fiction and horror. The key tropes of the mad scientist, the secret knowledge mankind was never meant to have, and the dangerous but sympathetic monster can all be traced back to Shelley's work. The development of horror fiction also owes much to the isolated settings and the murderous secrets of gothic novels, such as Clara Reeve's The Old English Baron and Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho. Moving into the 20th century, although genre fiction was dominated by male writers, many of its most respected authors were women. Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House defined its subgenre. Ursula K. Le Guin won numerous awards for both her science fiction and fantasy works, including the title of Grand Master of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Even Toni Morrison's Pulitzer Prize-winning Beloved has a hint of genre fiction about it. It's as much a ghost story as it is anything else. In the present day, we might expect more authors to be women than men. Since the 1980s, female university graduates have outnumbered male ones, and women are more likely than men to go into the arts. So have female authors begun to outpace male ones in book sales? Well, yes and no. Here again, genre is a key factor. The New York Times bestseller list is the classic indicator of what books are popular among Americans, and, to some extent, the broader English-speaking readership. Looking at which authors make the list, there has been a move in most genres towards a broad gender parity over the last 30 years. In that period, women have comprised more than 40% of the best-selling authors in the mystery and horror genres, as well as the nebulous but prestigious category of literary fiction. They dominate the romance genre, and more surprisingly, in the 2010s, 85% of historical fiction authors were female. Male authors still vastly outsell female ones in adventure, politics, and sci-fi and fantasy. As in previous years, though, women authors who do break into sci-fi and fantasy tend to be particularly acclaimed. N.K. Jemison won the Hugo Award an unprecedented three years in a row with her Broken Earth trilogy. Next, films. Picture the early days of Hollywood, and you'll probably imagine an extremely male-dominated environment. Surprisingly, this is far from the truth. In its earliest incarnation, film was considered largely as entertainment for women, who took key roles both in front of and behind the camera. From 1915 to 1925, female screenwriters wrote half all copyrighted Hollywood films. The highest-paid American director was a woman, Lois Weber, and she and her fellow auteurs such as Alice Guy Blanche and Mabel Noman made hundreds of films between them. As movies became a more mainstream and profitable enterprise, the power and influence of women filmmakers diminished. The last few years have seen an increase in films starring or directed by women, but their numbers and earning power still lag far behind their male counterparts. In 2019, the world's highest-paid female actor was Scarlett Johansson, who earned around $56 million, while Dwayne The Rock Johnson, 
the highest paid male actor, took home more than 89 million. Of course, it's hard to care about numbers that big. A star who can command more than 10 million per film is not in need of anyone's sympathy, but it's illustrative of a larger problem. The typical American wage gap is 20%, but, on average, a female actor in Hollywood earns 30 cents for every dollar a male actor makes. On the production side, the problem is just as stark. Half of all film school graduates are women, but the numbers show that they struggle to find work. In 2019, 33% of independent films submitted to festivals were directed by women, while about the same number had women writers. At the top of the industry, the statistics are far worse. Of the top 100 highest-grossing films of 2018, 14% had female writers, and only 5% had female directors. In recent years, this issue has been brought to the forefront by organisations such as the Gina Davis Institute and the UK's Raising Films, which aim to call attention to the problem and support women in the industry. The lack of female talent behind the camera may help to explain the relative scarcity of lead roles for women. The last decade has been marked by the rise of the superhero blockbuster, but only 14% of superhero films had solo female leads, albeit a reflection of the source material. 31% had male and female co-leads. These films' performance at the box office gives some cause to be hopeful for the future, though. Wonder Woman made over $800 million internationally and, despite being the subject of a vicious trolling campaign, Captain Marvel topped $1 billion. Fans of broader genre fare can also look on the bright side. A recent large-scale study by Google and the Gina Davis Institute showed that female characters get 43% of the speaking time in science fiction films, in contrast to action films' dismal 29%. Horror films perform best at gender equality, with 47% female speaking time, and are the only genre in which women get more average screen time than men. Small wonder that, in defiance of stereotypes, women frequently make up half the audience for major horror releases. Lastly, games. Our culture largely considers video games to be regressive and unhealthy. Politicians excoriate violence in video games as a leading cause of gun violence. Parents everywhere roll their eyes at the digital gunfire blaring up from the basement. And the rise of gaming has led to a new social stereotype, the gamer nerd. In the midst of this emerging cultural movement, we see a microcosm of our culture at large, and it's a perfect perspective from which to examine how our cultural understanding of gender and sex have changed. In some ways, that change has happened in very recent years. In 2014, Ubisoft creative director Alex Amancio justified cutting the female avatar from the four-player co-op mode of Assassin's Creed Unity because building female player models was really a lot of extra production work. In 2018's Assassin's Creed Odyssey, by contrast, the choice between a male and female player avatar was a flagship feature. Many players wish to identify with the avatar they control on the screen, and increasingly these players aren't white teenage boys. According to data collected by Tech Jury on December the 18th of 2019, 45% of American video gamers are women. The average age of a male video gamer is 34, a female gamer, 36. Of course, many of these gamers aren't necessarily PC or console gamers. Mobile gaming makes up a third of the market. Still, our popular perception of what a video gamer looks like is fairly outdated. The cliché does still exist, but it's more fringe than mainstream. A portion of the gaming community resists how that might change the games they play. This came to a head in Gamergate, a mighty clash in the ongoing culture war that began in August of 2014. Broadly speaking, there were two sides to the conflict. 
a loose coalition of independent, largely female game developers and game critics, opposed by a movement of more traditional gamers. As the game developers and critics pushed for greater inclusion of independent games, including games that catered to women and minorities, the hordes of 4chan and the like rose in uproarious protest. Breitbart News ran articles about feminist bullies that were destroying the fabric of gaming. Female developers faced threats, in some cases so extreme that the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation got involved. The movement has since fizzled out, but hostility towards gaming inclusion remains, despite the fact that, on the development side, gaming really isn't that diverse. According to a report by the International Game Developers Association, released in early 2018, three-quarters of surveyed game developers are male. This study is notably weighted towards the United States, although it includes a number of Asian and European countries. This means that, overwhelmingly, men control the industry. Male gamers don't need to worry about losing representation anytime soon. The industry is more diverse than it was even a decade ago, but female representation still lags. Some notable games, mostly indie, have female protagonists, such as Hellblade, Control and Tomb Raider, while many popular games do offer the choice of male or female protagonists, such as the Fallout, Pokemon and Borderlands franchises, plus most MMOs and Battle Royale games. In games with single protagonists, though, the default game protagonist is usually male and overwhelmingly white. Such games and franchises include Mario, Halo, The Witcher, Metal Gear, The Legend of Zelda, Hitman, Devil May Cry, Death Stranding, Call of Duty, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, Titanfall, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and so on and so on. 2018's Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, the latest game in a series which features characters from a plethora of games, has a roster that is more than 80% male, not including duplicates or characters whose gender is unclear, like Yoshi or Pikachu. Many of these are long-running franchises, born in an era when women truly were less involved in gaming, but long-running franchises largely remain the most popular and highest-grossing ones. Although we've made great strides in recent years, video game characters largely still do not reflect the people who play them. The point isn't to get rid of great characters like Mario and Master Chief, but that when a form of media is expanded to include more types of people, it benefits everyone, including those who have been represented from the beginning. Women have always been key contributors to genre fiction and video games, and make up a much greater part of their audience than stereotypes suggest. Although the process seems agonisingly slow, the last two decades have seen an increase in the number of female creatives in influential positions across all forms of media. Progress has been even slower for creators who are LGBT or people of colour, or all three, but they too are beginning to see their contributions recognised, although that's a big enough subject to deserve an article of its own. Creative equality means creative diversity. We are a storytelling species. It matters what stories we tell and who we choose to tell them about. When we let more creators have their say, we let new stories into the world. And that's worth getting excited about. Self-Pub Review This month, we have two cracking new self-published books for you. One novel, one collection of short stories. First off, The Blackbird and the Ghost by Hugh Steer. Tan Wenlock, the Blackbird, adventurer and rogue, seeks his fortune on the infamous Boiling Seas, a place where sailors fear to venture. There are strange islands and stranger ruins lurking in the ever-present occluding steam, rising from the alarmingly warm seas that give the area its distinctive name. 
The treasure Tan pursues might have the power to change the world, but he just wants it to change a life other than his own. If he has any chance of reaching his goal, he'll have to brave dangerous streets, steal forbidden knowledge, and descend into the very bowels of the earth. He'll have to lie, cheat, steal, and fight to stay one step ahead of the ghosts of his past. That the author is both historian and comedian is evident right from the beginning. The tone is very Indiana Jones, complete with clever traps and ingenious puzzles. It's a strong, intense cliffhanger start, and one that really hooks you in. Those hooks draw deeper when the story switches to three weeks prior, and you start to get to know the lovable rogue Tan and his witty and charming internal monologue. Tan is more than your average thief, at times appearing more interested in the history of the item he's acquiring, rather than the item itself. Then there is the interplay between the characters, which is one of the highlights of the book. Original wit and humour are evident throughout. Starting at the end of the tale and backtracking to the beginning is a tried and tested method of engagement, and the author manages the transition deftly. However, this is at the expense of pace, as backstory and world-building take centre stage in the first few chapters following the switch. It's worth it, though, as the author creates a vibrant, dark, and dangerous fantasy landscape through which the Blackbird moves. I loved the style, which combines adventure and archaeology with fantasy. Boiling seas warmed by underwater lava, ancient libraries, underground caverns, mines, and swooping airships. The writing is rich and warm, filled with soft humour, an easy-to-read style, and descriptive prose that is so rich you can almost reach out and feel the warm, misty spray of the sea and the cold grip of the caverns. From the quality of the prose, you wouldn't expect The Blackbird and the Ghost to be a self-published novel. It seems clear the author is either good at self-editing or has some help in this regard. It's polished, more so than most self-published works a great work of fantasy adventure fiction that deserves to be picked up by a major publisher. Next, we have Catching Light by Alec Lamberton. Back in the 20th century, many authors cut their teeth by writing short fiction. It was an easier route to seeing their work published in magazines such as Weird Tales, Asimov Science Fiction, New Worlds, Interzone, Amazing Stories, or Astounding Science Fiction, before the internet and the ebook changed the publishing landscape. While the short story is still going strong, and web-based magazines such as Strange Horizons and Clark's World now lead the way, you don't often see self-publishing authors releasing their own collections before establishing themselves with larger works of fiction. Then again, no writer publishes a book in a vacuum, and Catching Light didn't take the usual route to publication. Alec Lamberton had wanted to write since that fateful night in 1969 when humanity finally broke the confines of our small planet. Despite his energy and a promising start, life moved Alec in a different direction, and it wasn't until many years later that this book was born, after he was forced to take a career break due to illness. He realised that the scriptwriting that he had been practising for years had honed his skills for writing short fiction. The result is this book, a collection of stories Lamberton has written over the years, almost half a century in the making. I picked up Catching Light as a diversion from my melancholy mood after finding out that Clive James, an author and presenter I had always admired, had lost his ten-year battle with leukaemia. On opening the book, I find a quote by none other than James himself. All I can do is turn a phrase until it catches the light. I've read thousands of books, and this is the first I've seen that opens with a quote by James other than his own work. The title of this fiction is, of course, a play on this line. 
The idea was to offer the reader a number of perspectives, rather than one long story, that they can dip in and out of at will. The result is an interesting collection, each story offering something different and yet many with clear influence from 20th century science fiction, without the misogyny and racism. Green and Pleasant Land is set in the time of William Shakespeare, in a reality in which the Punic Wars ended differently, giving rise to a strikingly alternate country. Three of the stories begin as a last man on Earth scenario, but go way beyond that into a post-human galactic civilization of artificial beings. There are 18 stories in all, each different in tone and style, from poem to fantasy to reflective piece. The quality of the writing is good. It's clear that the author has spent a great deal of time making sure each story is as polished as it could be. There are also some great ideas here, offering fresh perspectives on the usual science fiction tropes. A few of the standout stories for me include The View From Here, which offers a dialogue on climate change, looking back on how tough recovery could be for our descendants with all the damage we are doing now. The Call is also about climate change, but with a much more personal approach, as Alec receives a video call from his great-great-grandson, who lives in a much-changed 2092. Catching Light shows that self-published short story collections can work, an interesting book with some solid, intriguing ideas. Original Fiction, Lost at the Wedding Sometimes a party is the last place you want to be. By 10.30pm, Leslie Davis was bored and wishing she was anywhere else. The celebrations were in full swing. The low throb of bass and drums shivered the walls as a mixture of guests braved the flashing illumination of the dance floor. Through a haze of dry ice and assortment of shaking bodies, Leslie caught glimpses of her husband Mark. He had removed his jacket and tie and writhed in a middle-aged way in the centre of the stage, his bald head shining under the disco lights. Occasionally his movements corresponded in a vague way to the dated music selections of the DJ. It was clear he believed he was a modern-day John Travolta. Leslie glanced about. Thankfully there was no need to worry about him attracting admirers. In front of him thronged the usual mix of ages that you found at any wedding, all aping the movements they'd seen others do, as they clustered in circles that implied affection, but not intimacy. They all kept apart from Mark, as if worried he might lose what little coordination he had left. Leslie smiled fondly. It was hard to feel the kind of affection for him as she had when they first met ten years ago, but for his faults... He was hers, a fact she didn't doubt. She knew she'd changed over that time as well. Two children, the hips thickening, the hair gaining some grey which she chose to colour. The wedding was for Mark's Irish cousin Dave and his new wife Claire, who were a fair amount younger, still in their twenties, and as such not people Leslie knew beyond family ties. She'd met them once at a similar occasion some years back, but she was very much the plus one here. The service had been held in the local church, presided over by Father Jacobs, a retired vicar who'd been wheeled out to marry off these childhood sweethearts. Leslie had followed on behind the rest, wishing the day away so she could get back to her own life. Was that a selfish thought? Perhaps. But she was here, and that was what everyone wanted. 
what Mark wanted especially. Something prodded her leg from under a table next to her. She lifted the cloth and peeked beneath, expecting an awkward confrontation with an exploratory child. Instead, she found herself staring at a tiny old woman, brandishing a knife. Don't move, Missy, or I'll start cutting your nylons. <laughs> Leslie stared. The miniature face that glared back had wrinkles on its wrinkles. The old woman couldn't have been more than two feet tall, the blade smaller than the cutlery, but she held it as if she meant business. Get up and make for the ladies, Lou. Get in cubicle number three, I'll meet you there. No tricks, or I'll cut ya. There was a cue for the toilet. Leslie kept her eyes on the floor as the women in front of her talked and laughed. She remembered the name of a twenty-something blonde who seemed to be holding court. Sarah, one of the bridesmaids talking with two other girls. Eventually the threesome trooped in, and Leslie found herself next. She tried not to appear too desperate, but a glance back revealed everyone else wearing a variety of frustrated expressions, albeit for a different reason. Finally, a leggy brunette dressed in a flowery dress and too much makeup came out and strode back to the party. Leslie rushed inside and went straight for the cubicles. Sarah was at the sinks, applying lipstick with one of her friends, while the other had to be in the stall. Leslie glanced around. There was a faint smell of cigarette smoke in the air. An out-of-order sign hung from cubicle three. The two girls weren't looking at her. She took a deep breath and quickly stepped inside. The toilet lid was down. The little old woman stood on it, ash hanging from a comically large fag-end in her teeth. She wore a plain grey shift that hid her whole body, apart from bare toes peeking out from underneath. She touched a finger to her lips and motioned for Leslie to lock the door. She did so. That's better. Now, I talk, you listen. The girls in here can hear you, but not me, unless I want them to. Nod for yes, shake for no. Understand? Leslie swallowed and nodded, noticing tiny transparent wings on the woman's back. She almost blurted out her astonishment, but the scowl she got when she opened her mouth kept her quiet. Good. I'll go through your questions, then. My name is Wilma. Yes, it is short for something. Yes, I am short. Deal with it. No, other people can't see me, just you and any particularly perceptive children. Yes, I'm here for a reason, and yes, you're a part of it. I chose you because you look bored. She leaned forward, ash floating from her cigarette. I need you to steal something for me. Steal? But I... I began Leslie. Quick as a flash, Wilma flew off the seat and was eyeball to eyeball with her. Her wings a blur and her little knife raised threateningly. No talking! Remember what I said. They can hear you. They'll think you're mad. Sure enough, there was a soft knock on the cubicle door. You're right in there, someone asked. F -f Fine, Leslie replied. The toilet says out of order, the voice added. Oh, I, I know, 
Leslie said. I'd, I just need some alone time. Still hovering, Wilma took a long drag on her cigarette and blew smoke into Leslie's face. That's what happens when you go off script, sugar lips. Now, stick to doing what I tell you, and your life can go back to humdrum soon as... <coughs> Capriche. Leslie nodded, clamping a hand over her mouth to stop herself from coughing. Good, Wilma said. I need you to steal me a ring. The one the virgin bride gave her betrothed at the hand fasting. She scowled and shook a gnarled finger in Leslie's face. Do it, or it'll be the worse for you. Get it? Leslie felt faint. She leaned against the wooden divider as the sister next door flushed, but there was no escaping Wilma, who jabbed at her with a knife again. I said, do you get it? Nod for yes, shake for no. Leslie nodded, helpless to do otherwise. The miniature old woman seemed to relax. Shouldn't be too hard. Hmm? Just get him to take it off so you can have a look. You'll think you're being lovely and interested. You can fake that for a bit, can't you? You're better. Or it's snip-snip for you. Wilma made a slashing motion with the little blade, making Leslie flinch. All right, she whispered. Good. With that, Wilma vanished. Her emotions awhirl, Leslie made her way back to the table. A sweaty mark sat there and was halfway through the jug of water. Where'd you go? he demanded, with a smile that softened the words. To the loo, Leslie managed to reply. The whole business with Wilma was becoming less and less real in her mind. Can I have some of that? she asked, pointing to his drink. Of course, Mark said, pouring for her as she sat down. Are you okay? You're, you're really pale. Oh, it's, it's just something I ate, Leslie said, taking the proffered glass and quickly gulping a mouthful. The iced water steadied her. She wondered what Wilma would do if she didn't follow instructions. What could she do? Did she even exist? I was chatting to Dave, Mark continued, leaning towards her. He's so pleased at the turnout. Almost everyone's here apart from um, Uncle Frank, but you can't expect him to get over from... Did you get a chance to see the rings? Leslie blurted. Mark frowned. Sorry, it's just that I, I haven't seen them close up from where we were sat. Mark shrugged. Oh, we didn't talk about them, he said. Did you want to see them? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> okay. What's the interest? It was just that I, I caught a glimpse earlier and I wanted a closer look. Leslie gave him her best appealing expression. He rose from the table. I, I'll try to catch them before they head off, he said. Alone again, Leslie tried to take stock. Her hands shook as they held the glass of water. She took deep breaths. The little old woman with the wings couldn't be real. It must have been a dream or some sort of hallucination. She'd never taken illegal drugs, but she remembered the pictures on television showing people under the influence and what they said about seeing things and the like. I mean, could it be that she... Here she is, Dave. <laughs> Leslie, they were just about to leave. 
Mark's quick return startled her. She stood up and smiled nervously at Dave and his new wife, Claire, who stepped forward and took her hand. Thank you so much for coming, Claire said, and seemed to genuinely mean it. She looked beautiful in her dress, her face flushed with the excitement of the day. Her young skin was a sharp contrast to the wrinkled, leathery old woman. But was there something about them both? Something around the eyes? Mark said you'd like to see the ring, Claire prompted. Oh, yes, of course, please. Claire quickly brandished her hand. Diamond and gold glittered in the light. We bought it together, she gushed. It took a while for them to get it adjusted. She's got small hands, hasn't she, Leslie? Mark said. Yes, Leslie replied. But actually, I, I wanted to see the ring you gave Dave. Oh, uh, right, Claire said and stepped back. Well, it's an old one that's been in the family for generations. Grandmother said she got it from her grandmother. Dave? Leslie swallowed nervously as Dave moved towards her. He'd done a tour or two in the army. She couldn't remember where or what as, but had that close-cropped haircut and heavy-set build all squeezed into a wedding suit. He held out his hand with the ring on it. It was a plain gold band around his fourth digit. Here, he said. Leslie took his hand. Unsure of what to do next, but at that moment a cry of triumph took the decision away from her. With a whiff of cigarette smoke, Wilma appeared in mid-air, descending at speed and snatched at Dave's hand, biting his finger at the base below the ring. Dave screamed. Leslie screamed. Claire screamed. Wilma tore across the room, making for the fire escape, Dave's bloody finger wriggling between her teeth. One of the ushers tried to get in her way. Another heavily built army type, but she didn't stop, barrelling into him. The man fell backwards, crying out in pain, and the little old woman sped on, leaving him lying on his back, several bloody holes punched through his shirt. She disappeared through the open doors, chaos and hysteria left in her wake. Leslie knew she was in shock. Dimly, she assumed she'd been in shock since first looking under the table. People seemed to be rushing around in slow motion. Mark shouted something at her, but when she didn't reply, he joined the others trying to help Dave and the groomsman who was bleeding on the dance floor. People were surrounding him. Sarah from the toilet queue knelt down, speaking urgently into a mobile phone as the DJ lights turned a bloody pool on the wooden floor into different colours. Children were being dragged out, and someone was tugging her arm to pull her away. Leslie resisted at first, but allowed herself to be moved back as more people rushed in. A little bit of her felt vindicated. She wasn't hallucinating. Everyone had seen what happened. Everyone had seen Wilma. Dave had a blood-soaked towel wrapped round his hand and was shouting at people around him. Mark's arm held her, then let go, leaving her standing by the doors as he ran back to the huddles of people. She smiled involuntarily. He wouldn't be able to assist. When she'd been pregnant, he'd been useless to everything, from the minute her waters broke to the minute she gave birth. Something touched her hand, making her glance down 
For a moment she flinched, thinking Wilma had returned, but for the little boy, his eyes wet with tears. Why did a fairy hurt a man? he asked. The world snapped back to normal. Uh, I, I don't know, Leslie managed to reply. Fairies are supposed to be good, the little boy said solemnly. Did a man do a bad thing? I don't think so. Then why? Leslie looked round. Wedding guests were still stumbling out of the building. No one appeared to be looking for a lost child. She thought over Claire's story about the ring. Grandmother said she got it from her grandmother. Oh, the police are here, shouted the little boy. Leslie looked up and saw the flashing blue lights of a patrol car just as it pulled up in the car park. Two officers, a man and a woman, got out and immediately started to question the guests. Someone reported a robbery in some ABH, said the woman officer. Can anyone give us a description of the thief? Yes, yes I can, said Leslie, raising her hand. But I, I'm not sure you'll believe what you're going to hear. <laughs> Let's talk about Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. It was the final big cinema event of 2019 and has divided critics and audiences. Was it a suitable faithful send-off or an incoherent mess? Our team discussed the final film in the Star Wars mythos. Best read once you've seen the film as we discuss all the plot twists. The crawl irritated me. The text introduction is a Star Wars staple, but the content really did feel like a massive shift of plot premise from the end of the last film. And full caps on the first line always irritates me. From there, things moved fast, and you could see the way Abrams was trying to cover a lot of ground. We got a whole ton of space opera straight off the bat, giving us the context for all the main cast and setting up the next stage of the plot. I agree about the crawl. It startled me, frankly. Somehow, I'd gotten so wrapped up in the cultural critique of J.J. Abrams and nostalgic filmmaking in general that I had forgotten all about the fact that this was still Star Wars. Still that franchise from the 80s with sprawling starscapes and scrolling blue lettering and strange grammatical construction. I feel like the opening sequence of the film was a pretty good indication of how the entire rest of the film was going to flow. In tightly shot, rapid-fire scenes that were like little stories in themselves. Kylo Ren goes on his little quest, breezing by dead soldiers and celestial labyrinths and ancient monoliths to uncover the film's principal plot hook that will drive the rest of the story. The film sets out its stall very firmly in the first few minutes. This is the new bad guy, this is the new plot engine. Now hold tight while we jump through space, a lot. Like it or not, it's at least very clear up front about what it's going to do. Star Wars is a franchise that requires you to be ten years old. As an adult, if you can't transport yourself back to being a ten-year-old for a couple of hours, you'll find yourself picking holes and quibbling over physics, plot points, etc. If you compare the films with Harry Potter, where the themes grow with you as Harry and his friends grow up, you can see the different take. If you go into a Star Wars film looking for that kind of gradual shift towards the adult audience, you're not going to get it. I disagree. I think the themes in Star Wars are necessarily broad and mythic, but they don't have to be juvenile. Rogue One, The Last Jedi, controversial as it proved, and recently The Mandalorian have all mixed the series' classic sci-fi action and cod mysticism with interesting questions about, for example, the nature of heroism or self-sacrifice. 
I don't think I was bothered by the plot holes in Rise of Skywalker because I failed to sufficiently embrace my inner child. I think I was bothered by them because the film didn't provide a coherent emotional throughline to sweep me along with it. Western culture, especially American culture, is engulfed in an internal war trying to figure out just what everything means. When it turns out a celebrity abused children, does that invalidate his life's work? When a politician made a racist remark, does that taint all his accomplishments? Answering these questions are beyond the scope of this article or this film, but even Star Wars can't escape the culture war. For all that the franchise claims to take place a long time ago, films are always reflections of the time in which they're made. Broadly speaking, I see the divisiveness between the Abrams films and the Johnson film is a result of each film taking a specific side in that culture war. Abrams falls on the side of traditional values, nostalgia and heritage. It was implicit in The Force Awakens and became much more explicit in The Rise of Skywalker, probably due to a lot of prodding from the portion of the fanbase upset by Johnson's take on the franchise. As Alan points out, Abrams leans into the ten years old again vibe, where the world is nice and uncomplicated. I liked pretty much all of it. There's a tendency for critics to take potshots at things, labelling them as fan service and the like, but if you know what you're going in for and what works... Why not acknowledge the positives of that? As a canon writer for a variety of franchises and a supporter of consistent world-building, little touches that hark back to previous films are caveat to me. Billy D. Williams was great to see. The work to include the late Carrie Fisher was clearly a gymnastic stretch, but there was just about enough. I was in tears at some of the callbacks and cameos, but then I cry easily when I watch my darlings, and Star Wars is one of those darlings. I enjoyed seeing Poe, Finn and Rey together at last. Although I had problems with the plotting, the general idea was sound. Sending the United Trio off to chase a MacGuffin around the galaxy created an active pace, some varied set pieces and room for the characters to bounce off each other. I thought the performances were universally pretty great. Harrison Ford's cameo brought some genuine pathos on a moment where it was badly needed, and Adam Driver's switch between the menace but fundamental insecurity of Kylo Ren and Ben Solo, who has lost all weapons but regained his self-confidence, really worked for me. And the climax had some great moments. Despite being sure they were coming, I was ready to cheer when Lando turned up with his civilian recruits, and I loved Finn being Force-sensitive and Rey finally making contact with the Jedi before her. For me, in the last 20 minutes or so, the feel-good moments really did make me feel good, Before that point, they mostly didn't. Abrams has a number of filmmaking gifts. He can cast like no one else. Daisy Ridley, John Boyega and Oscar Isaac continue to dazzle us with their on-point acting. Adam Driver is more of a mixed bag, but I think he did a fantastic job of selling Kylo Ben this time around. Abrams also has a great eye for atmosphere and flavour. Fans of his Star Wars films rightly point out that they just feel like Star Wars. From the droid beep-boops to the swarm of Star Destroyers blotting out the sky, he excels at breathtaking cinematic moments. In short, he does a great job of, as he puts it, making each moment feel delightful. To that end, Abrams checks all the boxes when it comes to revisiting the old hits. Luke, Han and Leia, check, check and check. Billy Dee Williams, check, finally. Force lightning and droid noises and a final confrontation that, in-universe, refers back to the showdown at the end of Return of the Jedi? Check. All of the imagery, all the theming, it's all there. Unfortunately, that leads into my critique of the film as well. 
The competing visions of what this Star Wars trilogy was supposed to be about were pretty evident in this film. J.J. Abrams and Rian Johnson were not communicating as well as they should have been, and The Rise of Skywalker suffers from the lack of story content in The Last Jedi that moves us from The Force Awakens to the final film. Johnson's take on Luke Skywalker is dismissed by Abrams with the line, I was wrong. It might as well have been Ryan was wrong. Comparatively, The Last Jedi is left looking pretty forgettable by The Rise of Skywalker. Don't get me wrong, I liked the second film, but the trilogy would have been so much better if it had had one director. Sadly, I spent most of the film in a state of miserable frustration. Of course, it looks beautiful, and the action scenes are breathtaking. I think it's reasonable to expect that from this franchise. But why was it necessary to undo every single thing that happened in the previous film? Kelly Marie Tran's measly 76 seconds of screen time felt particularly inexcusable to me. Why does nobody have a character arc? Kylo Ren comes the closest, but even his redemption felt largely arbitrary, although I'm inclined to overlook that and any other problems that seem to have been caused by the tragic loss of Carrie Fisher. Rey spent The Last Jedi searching for a hero, and finally came to the realisation that the hero was her, but instead of embracing this role in the final film, she spends the whole of The Rise of Skywalker grappling with the ridiculous Rey Palpatine backstory she's suddenly been saddled with. Poe is back to being a maverick, all of the lessons he learnt about leadership apparently forgotten. And imagine how brilliant it would have been if, while Lando rallied the common people, Finn set out to convert his fellow stormtroopers, who the film confirms are often child slaves, to the cause. Instead, he gets to shoot them and shout, Woo! The film constantly undermines its own emotional stakes by refusing to commit to anything. Major deaths are undone so often it begins to feel like a running gag. Rey can't kill Palpatine because if she does, she'll become a Sith, but five minutes later she kills him in a slightly different way and it's absolutely fine. If I'd been engaged by the story and the characters, I wouldn't have cared in the least that the Rise of Skywalker has plot holes big enough to drive a Star Destroyer through, but for me the film actively and repeatedly discouraged that kind of engagement. After discussing, at length, my issues with this movie with the people in my life, it all boils down to one thing. I look at this film and think, what does it mean? Others watch the movie and ask, how does it make me feel? That's the long and the short of the Abrams dilemma. Abrams is fantastic at capturing a feeling, a vibe, a snapshot of, yes, this is right, this is what I'm here for. And he does it over and over again. Every moment needs to be an emotional high, a climax, a delight. It makes for a great experience in the moment, but it doesn't last. You cheer as the rebels mow down stormtrooper after stormtrooper, but lying in bed that night, you remember, wasn't it established minutes earlier that stormtroopers are all traumatised child soldiers? You gasp as Kylo Ren's final redemption calls back to the story of the serpent in the cave, but walking out of the theatre, you think, is that really how redemption works? You cry as Rey renounces her identity as a Palpatine and claims the Skywalker dynasty as her found family, but then later think, what does being a Skywalker even mean to her? I have so much I want to say about the yellow lightsaber that I'm practically exploding. In the end, the story lacks the resonance of previous films in the series. For some, none of that matters. What matters is we saw the old faces and the lightsabers and the X-Wings, all of which looked fantastic. But good storytelling needs more than highlights if it's going to stick. Good stories make sense. Good stories have an internal, not necessarily external, logic. Good stories have subtle meanings as well as blatant ones. That takes hard work. 
That takes suffering through moments that aren't delightful. That takes slowing down and maybe not cramming reference after reference after reference into a film that ends up feeling less like a story than an exhibition. That's what this movie ends up being, a museum of everything that made Star Wars great and fun, at least at a surface level. That may satisfy moviegoers now, but I suspect that for almost everyone, this movie will gather dust at the back of their Disney Plus catalogue, because it has no real lasting value or meaning. I want to stick up for J.J. Abrams, because I don't think the blame for the shape, the rise of Skywalker, or the sequel trilogy as a whole took actually lies with him. Disney executives are the ones who made the decision to have each film made individually without a clear plotline being laid out in advance, which seems to have been the cause of most of our problems with the film. They're also responsible for its shortened production schedule. Abrams' editor, Marion Brandon, has stated that the film had three months less production time than The Force Awakens, and she began editing it while shooting was still ongoing. And of course, it's impossible to tell which events in the film were devised by its screenwriters and which were mandated by its producers but it certainly had a feeling of being built by a committee. Fundamentally, the problem is less Abrams-specific approach to filmmaking than the blockbuster genre as a whole. Movies that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to produce and advertise are naturally incentivized away from being interesting or challenging and towards being crowd-pleasing, even at the expense of coherency. The problem's writ large in The Rise of Skywalker, but it's in no way unique to it. As comedian Andrew Neil once observed, Millionaires seldom make good artistic decisions. I mentioned the culture war earlier and how Abrams comes down on the opposite side from Johnson. In the end, I don't think that's a problem. As Alan said, it makes the trilogy as a whole a little inconsistent. But that happens with big franchises like this, with a lot of fingers in the pie. Abrams and his fans are right in that there's a real value and joy to be found in the themes of family, loyalty and sacrifice. In the end, though, my biggest issue with the film is not that Abrams is a cultural warrior, it's that he's a bad one. I don't have any idea what the film is trying to say except evil, bad, Skywalker, good. It's fun, it's thrilling, it's nostalgic, but it can't last because there's no underlying meaning to any of it. Someone whose thinking I greatly respect pointed out that Abrams' approach allows viewers to make their own meaning in the film. For people who have been fans of the franchise since the 70s, this is a chance for them to have some closure. To say goodbye to characters and plot threads that they've adored for 40 years. I guess that could be true. I think it could have been a great deal more, though. Looking for a sense of meaning beyond the surface of Star Wars' traditional battle of good versus evil, Jedi versus Sith, is a lost cause. There are films that cater for that kind of analysis. Star Wars is not among them, and never has been. If you go in looking for an emotive and fun ride that calls back to all those nostalgic icons of the franchise, then you won't be disappointed. I went into The Rise of Skywalker understanding what I was going to get, and I loved the experience. Alan, genuinely, I'm really glad it made you happy. I wish I'd felt that way too. But while Star Wars may be the wrong place to look for deeper meaning, I don't think basic character arcs and a plot that more or less makes sense are too much to ask for, and I didn't get them. For me, the film must remain a shiny, shiny disappointment. Know Your Community, The South London Warlords. Matt Cross is read by Christopher Jarvis. The South London Warlords have been a bastion of tabletop wargaming in London for nearly 50 years. They also run Salute, the UK's largest wargaming convention. 
we caught up with Mac Cross, long-time member and organiser, about the group's past, present and future. Hey Mac, when were the South London Warlords formed? In September 1971, under the name of the South Bermondsey Military Modelling Society, the South London Warlords was formed by three wargamers, Jim Shields, Dave Rota and Bill Brewer. And what's your role within the group? I've had many roles in the club over the years, uh, social secretary, treasurer, president, and for the last 10 years or so I have been the salute coordinator. What games did you play? The problem with someone in my age group is that I've had far too long to collect game systems, and I seem to be a collector of rule sets. Many I have only read and not played. I have far too many to list here, but just as a small sample, I enjoy playing Bolt Action, Rapid Fire, Iron Cross, Test of Honour, Sword and Spear, Kings of War, Fubar, Shako, and Stars and Lasers. When did you join? I joined the club when Salute was being held in the Kensington Town Hall, which would have been around 1998. I saw an advert for the show and decided that I wanted to go and see what this wargaming silliness was all about. And, well, after a few hours walking around the show, I was hooked. Has the group's purpose changed at all over time? Do we have a purpose? I guess it mentions in our club's constitution that we're trying to promote the hobby, and through Salute we do, and hopefully we will continue to do so. How many members do you have now? That's not an easy question to answer. On paper there are probably well over 90 members, but that does include some people that only help out at Salute. Full active members are harder to gauge, but... On any given Monday night, we normally have around 20 people turning up for games. Has your membership changed much in the last few years? Well, it certainly has got a little younger. We've seen a lot of younger members joining over the last few years, which has to be good for the club. Do you do much to attract new members? We put on a party game once a month for any new members that want to come to the club and play. These are great fun and have seen a little success over the years in attracting new members. But in this day and age of social media, we have a simpler and quicker way to contact possible new members. We can arrange for people to attend the club, and we often arrange games that new members can join in with, so they get to see that we are friendly and not too scary. And obviously, we promote through our show, which has always been a great way to get people involved with our club. And how often do you meet up? The club meets on most Monday nights throughout the year, and we try to get at least one Saturday of each month for those big games. Does the group have a presence at other hobby fairs and conventions around the country? Groups of club members often take games around to other shows throughout the year, putting on either displays or demo games. We also travel to a game or two outside of the UK. What can someone thinking of joining expect from the South London Warlords? The South London Warlords are a friendly bunch of wargamers, and what you get when you join is to be part of a great club. You will see a good selection of games played on a club night, you would be made to feel welcome. And hey, you'd be able to help run a great show. Wargaming has traditionally been a very white male hobby. Some pastimes that had a similarly limited audience have broadened out a lot in recent years, like video games. Do you see a similar trend with wargaming? I think that may have been true, but I think this has changed over the past few years. Just looking around shows like Salute, you'll see a great mix of people enjoying the hobby from all walks of life and age groups. And the number of female gamers and painters has increased as well. What's the differences between the different membership tiers? The South London Warlords have three types of membership. Full membership gives access to the club hall every Monday and Saturday that it's open. Members have access to the club forum and they also get a copy of the club magazine, Command Post. 
Associate membership is designed for more physically remote members who are not able to attend the club every Monday evening. They still have access to the club forum and receive the club magazine by post. Temporary membership is designed to allow guests of the club to attend on a Monday or Saturday and to help out at Salute. When was the first Salute? In April 1972, the club ran its first open day for the public and it was held at the Surrey Tavern at the Oval Cricket Ground. How many people does Salute attract now? Salute sees a small increase in attendance almost every year. Salute 2019 was no different. We saw over 6,000 people come through the doors on the day. Does Salute exclusively focus on war games or has it broadened out to incorporate other hobbies? Because most of the traders and gaming groups that attend the show are involved in war games in some form or another, the show does lean heavily towards war gaming, but we do try to promote and encourage other things. Groups of reenactors have a place in the show almost every year, sci-fi, fantasy and historical. We also try to promote the painting side of the hobby with our painting competition, which has grown year upon year. How do you think the wargame scene is doing in the UK? Seeing the wargaming scene in the UK through my work, my hobby and through Salute, I see a great and varied mix of games being played. There seem to be new rule systems and miniatures coming out all the time, which is great. It's as strong as ever. Do the South London Warlords have any exciting plans for the future you can tell us about? Obviously, our main plan each year is to put on the best Salute that we can. This takes a massive amount of our time to do and is something that we all love to be involved with. Also, a few members of the club have been running small events at our club hall. This year saw a Batman event and a Two Fat Lardies day. I believe events like this will be a regular thing in the club year. Great. Lots to look forward to. (laughs) Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting me to take part in this interview. The South London Warlords meet every Monday evening at St Barnabas Parish Hall in Gilks Place, Dulwich Village. Salute 2020 is on the 18th of April and tickets are £10 online. Find out more at www.salute.co.uk The Mysterious Case of Dentara Rast A few years ago, as part of my work on the Elite Dangerous Role-Playing Game, or EDRPG... I wrote a set of short stories as adventure hooks for games masters. One of these stories was a continuation of the story of Dentara Rast and the uprising on Tiliala, which you can find on the free download section of the EDRPG website. This was part of the plot of Frontier First Encounters, released in 1995 and set in the 3250s. One of the key story missions of the game was Assassinate Dentara Rast. To give an idea of the context, Frontier First Encounters had a news bulletin system which would update as the player travelled through the galaxy. At each space station, you'd get the latest news. Dintara Rast was often featured in news bulletins as he led an independence movement for Tiliala and attempted to thwart the work of the local government of the system by fair means or foul. Eventually, the player was provided with an opportunity to intervene through the mission to end Rast's campaign against the authorities. This mission helped resolve the war between the major elite factions, the Puppet Government and the Tiliala Independence Movement. With Elite Dangerous sharing the same fictional universe, but set in 3300 AD, and with little or no story content connected to the old mission, what became of Dentara Rost's family after his execution seemed like a good story to tell, 
So I began by researching, like I do with most stories, by firing up Google and seeing what I could find. Immediately, I was in for a shock. EVE Online is not a game I play. I was interested in playing it when it first came out, but never wanted to subscribe to a massively multiplayer online game, so the game passed me by. It turns out there was a wholly different story connected to the name Dentara Rast. If you're a player of the game, you may have heard of it. If not, here's what happened. In early 2006, an EVE Online player going by the name of Callie set up the EVE Investment Bank. This was a semi-in-game entity that allowed players to trade the game's currency, Interstellar Credit, or ISK, for real money. Like many legitimate currencies, ISK has a conversion rate to US dollars, and like many games before and since, that conversion rate has been maintained through player demand on the system. The bank expanded throughout that year. The convenience of using a dedicated trade platform and providing account information where players could see how much they had accrued was an attractive lure. Generally, people invest in things when they have confidence in them, and Eve Investment Bank was a trusted, efficient and attractive platform for their exchanges. By August 2006, the EVE Investment Bank had made itself part of the furniture for EVE players. According to reports at the time, it, and therefore Cali, had managed to acquire nearly 800 billion ISK. At that point, the bank suddenly went down, and Cali's account disappeared, leaving behind a ten-minute video explaining the heist. The player behind the Cali account had run off with all of the in-game currency, worth around 100,000 US dollars if it could be exchanged. Of course, the number one exchange platform had just vanished, never to be seen again. At the time, the event generated quite a stir. The forums were alive with complaining players who'd been tricked by Cali. Magazine websites like Ars Technica covered the incident, stressing that technically, since ISK had no official value outside the game, Kali had not committed a crime. But the boundaries between the real world and the fictional universe of EVE had been bent by the ISK-to-dollar trade, and now they were broken, as people affected by the heist voiced their anger and hurt. The action was not seen as a legitimate in-game player-versus-player attack. It was seen as a real-world betrayal, a moral crime that went beyond the bounds of acceptable play. But the decision of players to establish a value for ISK and continue to trade it for real money meant that Callie's ill-gotten gains would retain value. All the thief needed to do was stay hidden until the whole scandal blew over. At this point, CCP Games, the owners of EVE Online, might have been expected to intervene. However, the company stated that Cali had not broken the terms and conditions of the end-user license agreement and that the action, while disreputable, was legitimate. The company did act through its moderators to remove the online confession video Cali posted owing to its use of profanity and sought to regulate discussions on the EVE Online forums. Within days, a thread appeared, claiming that the player behind Kelly was called Kieran, that he lived in England and had died of a cardiac arrest, or 
been sent to prison after a fight in a bar. Or both. Perhaps these stories were true. Another story emerged after a concerted player investigation. This postulated the idea that the character known as Callie's real name was Dintara Rast. Mind blown. The person behind the Eve Investment Bank scandal was clearly a shrewd space sim player. Dentara Rast was obviously not the real name of Kelly, but it was an obscure enough reference to fool a whole generation of Eve players. A few forum posters did make the connection, finding references to the Frontier First Encounters mission, but the majority took the bait and believed that they'd find the culprit. Either Kali Dentara knew the history and decided to leave players another pseudonym behind the existing identities that would act as a rare joke for any space sim fans in the know, or someone else, someone determined to ride on the notoriety of the event and create a smokescreen, decided to make up the connection. Dentara Rast, famed freedom fighter, terrorist and gangster, of the Tiliala independence movement in the elite frontier universe, flips into another reality and becomes the criminal mastermind of the EVE online universe. Alternatively, a lifelong elite frontier fan decides to play EVE online as a substitute for their old favourite and leaves a final calling card to the EVE players that they duped, leading them back to the rival game franchise. Of course, Elite Dangerous wouldn't be released for another eight years, so at the time there was no rivalry between the two franchises. But now, both are massively multiplayer online games vying for the attention of players who have similar interests. At the same time, the fan communities of each title have very different perceptions of the name. To EVE players, talking about Dentara resurrects a boogeyman. To elite players, the name is unlikely to be recognised unless the players in the conversation are steeped in the lore and history of the game universe. Looking back on an event that took place 13 years ago is difficult. Many of the internet sources that covered what happened at the time have disappeared, but enough fragments remain to give an indication of the anger and pain associated with the actions of Kali Dentara. Summaries of what transpired appear in several lists of the best internet scams ever, and the perpetrator will likely never be caught. The 790 billion ISK could have been gradually transferred into real currency through eBay sales or registration and transfer on similar successor sites to the EVE Investment Bank. It's possible that buried somewhere in the databases of CCP Games are enough details to find out the true identity of Kali Dentara, who acted in the true tradition of the fictional Rust family as both a gangster and a terrorist. Whoever it was, they created a myth and that myth has a life of its own beyond the games and the players themselves. That myth will remain, no matter what the instigator of the heist does with the rest of their lives. In many ways, the truth of what happened no longer matters. The legend has outgrown fact and become something else, a part of the Internet's timeline of events that will continue to grow and recede in equal measure. Well played. Dentara Rast. Well played.
Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 6. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Angus McNichol, Ant Jones, Ben Potts, Chris Cunliffe, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eddles, Jane Cluett, Rob Sawyers, Thomas Turnbull Ross and Tom Grundy. With special thanks to Mac Cross. It was edited by Alan Stroud, Jane Cluett and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Jamie Sugar, Christopher Jarvis, Kareem Cronfley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding and Tom Grundy and was edited by Ashley Devine and Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our patrons for their continued support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. Thank you.